G'day, mate. Forty here. It should be going out live over Rumble. It should be going out live over Odyssey, YouTube, Facebook, Twitter. So let me pull everything together here. What the heck? All right, let's uh, listen to a little Richard Spencer commentary. <laughs> this uh, obviously rather absurd nonsense. But what I think was, why I think it's a death blow is that that's actually, that kind of stuff is not going to appeal to regular Joe conservatives. And that kind of demeaning someone, ridiculing someone is far more powerful than treating them as powerful. Like if they treat, when they treat Nick as Darth Vader and they're like, this guy, he, whoa, you know. Okay, so he's talking about uh, Nick was on uh, Jimmy Kimmel. Like Jimmy Kimmel was making fun of uh, Nick Fuentes and uh, played Nick going on a rant <laughs> about how how being with, having sex with uh, with women is is gay. So I didn't expect to see Nick Fuentes showing up on that. Jimmy Action Kimmel denier. He's an anti-vaxxer. He's all the bad things. But I think this more than anything sums this gentleman up. Why people calling me gay because I've never had a girlfriend? I think if anything, if anything, it makes me less gay. Never having a girlfriend, never having sex with a woman, really makes you more heterosexual. Because honestly, dating women is gay. Having sex with women is gay. And having sex with men is gay. And, and you know, it's really, it's all gay. <laughs> That was the Christmas episode, by the way. He, Fuentes made a statement today saying Trump didn't know who he was and he didn't mean to bring any negative attention. He's a Look, uh, I think Fuentes was, was just making a joke. So he isn't seriously trying to argue that uh, having sex with, with women is good. Yeah, like you feel like... And I find him utterly boring. It's just so... I don't I just find him to be an extremely boring commentator, comedian. Anyway... Uh, regardless, I think he Jimmy actually Kimmel. dealt Talk a death blow to Fuentes last night. Because what was happening in other ways was um, they were uh, talking about Fuentes's kind of, what was happening? Based opinions, you know. And it was basically Fuentes as a young man just kind of sounding off and seeming, you know, I guess you could say a bit badass of like, you know, we need a Catholic dictatorship in this country. We're going to make everyone play by our rules, et cetera, et cetera. And you know, look, we can say what we want about that, but I think it the the promotion of all this kind of based stuff and, and also like, you know, we've tried we've tried the liberation of women and look where it's gotten us. You know, go back to the kitchen, you bitches, basically. That kind of stuff when you promote that, my guess is that yes, you know, a ton of liberals will be totally outraged and be just like, Oh, mask off, this guy's a total maniac. I imagine as well, a ton of conservatives will basically hear this kind of stuff and be like, Well, you know, well, he's a little uh uh, you know, he, he's a little edgy and out there, but yeah, he's kind of our guy. So it's, it was basically promoting Fuentes. I do think that they dealt a death blow on Jimmy Kimmel when they showed this clip that I remember seeing. I, can't, I think it was from a year ago. I don't think that's a death blow. Do you honestly think that's a death blow to Nick Fuentes? I, I think younger people understand that when you're doing a live stream, you're just popping off with everything that comes into your head. This is one of the, the tricks that they recommend for live streamers. Go on YouTube, put in, like, how do, uh, how do I become a, a YouTube live streamer? Like, how do I fill, fill the, the dead air? And one of the tricks that they say is, 
like just say anything that comes into your head uh, as long as it's not absolutely horrible. So Nick Fuentes does like a two hour live stream of us every night for, for years. That's very difficult to do. The only way you can pull off something like that is if you just say, you know, any you know random thing that comes to your head. The more transparent you are, the more likely you are to connect with the audience. So that was Nick going on a rant. I, I don't think that this clip played on, on Jimmy Kimmel will be a death. Oh, maybe it was from two years ago. He's he's there with a Christmas crush um, in on the table while he's speaking. So it must have been around this time of year, last year or the year before. And he goes into this rather hilarious, you know, ultimately diatribe about how having sex with women is in fact gay, <laughs> and. Um, you know, I'm a proud incel and gays actually will have sex with women. I'm, I'm not even, I, I'm sure that happens to some degree. I, I don't know. I, I don't even want to talk about the accuracy of that, but, um, you know, <clears throat> gays will sometimes have sex with women. Uh, so having sex with women doesn't make you heterosexual, in fact. And, um, you know, when you're having sex with women, you're, you're focused on them. You're kind of demeaning yourself is what I think he's saying. And so ergo, uh, having sex with women is gay and also having sex with men is gay. So it's in fact all gay. <laughs> and this, uh, obviously, rather absurd nonsense. But what I think was why I think it's a death. You don't think most people realize that that was just absurd nonsense? I mean, I had someone get mad at me the other day. I was asking some guy in his 20s about Kurumbang and Evandale College. I said, like, where's Lover's Lane these days? Like, where do young Seventh day Adventist couples go to make out? And someone objected, you're talking a lot of crap. And, and frankly, I'm offended. Well, yeah, I was talking crap. I was just just making light of things. I was just, you know, going on an absolute riff. I, I don't think anyone takes this uh, Nick Fuentes rant uh, too seriously. It's entertaining, right? Nick Fuentes, Rush Limbaugh, talk show host, live stream host, they are largely in the genre of entertainment. So to say things that are compelling and entertaining, you have to say something that's unexpected. And this was completely unexpected. I think most people you understand these genres, understand that this is entertainment. Hello, is that that's actually, that kind of stuff is not going to appeal to regular Joe conservatives. And that kind of demeaning someone, ridiculing someone is far more powerful than treating them as powerful. Like if they treat, if, when they treat Nick as Darth Vader and they're like, this guy, he, whoa, you know, forget Roe v. Wade being overturned. This guy wants to establish a Catholic dictatorship. You're treating him as Darth Vader, basically. He's this big, bad, um, willing to go all the way extreme, et cetera. That actually is, yes, you're going to get, you're going to develop a lot of pushback against him, but you're also going to kind of make him attractive and interesting and cool. When you ridicule someone, you're ultimately dealing a death blow. And I think this was a death blow. Now the other kind of. Okay. It's a lot harder to effectively deal a death blow to someone who doesn't take himself overly seriously. So Nick Fuentes is fluent in internet, ironic speech. Right, he he's understands the, the medium. I think it's Richard here who doesn't understand the medium that uh, Nick is working. The, like, in. Tragedy of Nick Fuentes is that all of that incel behavior. Like, is Nick Fuentes an incel, an actual incel? I have a hard time believing that. Um, for one thing, if you gain any sort of fame or even infamy, you become very attractive. You're the alpha. Right, but not everyone with fame and was the subject of attraction wants to go to bed. I remember when I was writing on the porn industry, all these women would hit on me, all these porn stars would hit on me, and I would just act oblivious because I just didn't want to get involved with most of them. 
So a lot of people who you know, are pursued, right, simply for, for various reasons, don't want to go to bed with, with strangers. And it's hard not to get chicks. You know, like if you, if you play bass in a minor heavy metal band, you're going to get chicks. <laughs> it just... Yeah, Richard took advantage of his opportunities to have sex with a lot of women. Not every guy is going to do that. Right. Some people think that that's an incredibly intimate deed that you should only do with people that you know very, very well. Uh, some people are simply intent on not self-destructing, and they understand that the more sexual partners you have, the more likely something is to go terribly wrong and your whole life and career to destruct. Just is the way of the world. And so Nick has been notorious for a number of years, and so it just strikes me as impossible that he hasn't been kind of like propositioned or yeah he's been propositioned not everyone goes for that been in situations where he could get laid really easily so i find it difficult to believe it is an insult i mean there's the insinuation that nick is gay um the uh uh the uh that nonsense with the cat boy a number of years ago uh, perhaps i don't know um you know it's speculation i could kind of see it but i could also not see it i don't know what to say i think he's sexually screwed up as a lot of young people are by the internet and online pornography and all that kind of stuff. I, I think it's actually a bit hard to imagine for me, at least as. It's also entirely possible that he's living for things greater than his own sexual satisfaction. So I think most people don't understand living a life that transcends satisfying their own primal desires, but there are people, right? There are people who have goals, who have values, who have commitments, who have discipline, to live a life that transcends their immediate basic primal desires. Most people don't, right? Most men will have sex with attractive young women if they're given the opportunity and they think they can get away with it. But there are people, and Nick may be one of them, who live for things that are much greater, more lofty than satisfying their sexual desires, and they're willing to keep their sexual desires in a closet, so to speak, so that they can pursue other goals. They don't want to be tied down. They don't want to be compromised. They don't want their life to be blown up. They don't want all the complications that come with sexual intimacy because they have other goals, other purposes, other joys in life, other aspirations that transcend their sexual impulses. There are such people. It doesn't make them gay or in cells or mentally defective. Some of them are. Many of them are not someone in middle age, like what it's like to be a 10-year-old who's seen online pornography. I, I think it's actually really traumatic and kind of, it screws you up. I, I, it's very unhealthy, in my opinion. And it's kind of different than when I was growing up in the 80s and 90s, where we would like... Nick would have no problem finding a girlfriend. But it is possible some people live in their teens and 20s, particularly dedicated to building their kingdom, right? Men basically from about age 18 to 22 until they're about 40, usually are primarily concentrating on building their kingdom. And so there are a lot of guys like Tom Wolfe, he didn't marry until his early 50s. A lot of guys in their 20s into their 30s who are just so focused on building their kingdom, getting ahead in their career, following their, their mission, serving their transcendent purpose. I mean, there are a lot of men who've been priests for, for years, and then finally they drop out of it in their 30s, say, to get married. But it's not that unusual among highly intelligent, highly dedicated, disciplined people who have a sense of <clears throat> mission and purpose and, and see themselves as world historical figures to just put their sex life or love life on hold for a few years. Either buy or even like shoplift a Playboy or penthouse or something and 
someone would have it and you know there, there was just there's a kind of like limiting factor to it where you know you could only see that at certain times and it was this you know treasure <laughs> that you either you acquired through money or theft there's just this it was very limited and being a young person now who's online yes i remember those years when i was you know desperate to get my hands on a playboy or a plant house magazine but not every guy was as desperate as me right not every guy had my degree of sexual dysfunction sexual compulsion sexual addiction or whatever you want to call it, so that I could think clearly when it came to sex, right? I've just been so fixated on sex from about, I don't know, about age nine or 10 until about 10 years ago that it, it incredibly disrupted my life and I made a lot of bad decisions in regard to it. But some people just want to leave aside that minefield, the, the erotic daydream, the, the love map, right, that, that we all have, we're threading our way through a field filled with landmines. And it, it opens up, you know, a lot of things in ourselves that uh, some people would rather keep shut down and closed off, at least until they accomplish certain other things in life. I, I know that once I started experiencing regular sex, I was kind of off to the races, I lost any sense of good judgment. When people are dating, they go to bed very quickly, they lose objectivity they lose distance they lose judgment on their relationship and on their partner fine all the time it's just too easy it's overwhelming you could see anything you you could see a bosch hellscape on a mainstream porn site that you don't have to pay for it's just horrible anyway um but i guess my point was that he he in a way his audience are these incels and his ability to acquire an organic audience is what gives him his power I don't really think it's his hot take ability. Now, Nick Fuentes is not unintelligent. Um, he uh, he is actually fairly intelligent. He certainly cares. So yes, I would. I started collecting porn magazines at about age sixteen and porn books, and I'd hide them in the woods. <laughs> I'd uh, put them, you know, I'd wrap them up so that they wouldn't get damaged by the, the rain, and I would consult them on my walk home from school. It's in a way that absolutely doesn't appeal to me but he's obviously charismatic he can go and talk in a live stream for two hours without stop most people can't do that and yeah but what enables you to do that is you just say a lot of crazy things that come to your head even if they're not reflective of your deeper more mature more profound thinking right to be able to do that you just have to be able to toss off observations you just have to share any random thing that comes to your head and so people are going to say silly things in that capacity. All right. The Guardian. Milo Yiannopoulos claims he set up Nick Fuentes' dinner to make Trump's life miserable. And Milo, the right-wing provocateur, says he helped arrange for Nick Fuentes to attend dinner with Trump and Kanye West. So Kanye had an in with Trump. Kanye was already going to visit Trump. Milo arranged it so that uh, Nick Fuentes came along. And Milo says, I wanted to show Trump the kind of talent he's missing out on by allowing his terrible handlers to dictate who he can, can't hang out with. Well, I think if that was Milo's purpose, the end result is the very opposite of that, right? Trump's team is now going to be much more restrictive about who Trump gets to hang out with. Milo says, I wanted to send a message to Trump. He has systematically, repeatedly neglected, ignored, abused the people who love him the most, the people who put him in office, and that kind of behavior comes back to bite you in the end. Well, this is going to have the effect of making Trump and his team much more careful about dealing with anyone in the alt-right or the alt-light. So 
Milo told NBC he arranged the meeting just to make Trump's life miserable. He was aware that news of the dinner would leak and that uh, Trump wouldn't hand it at all. Nick Fuentes disputes this. He says, this is not true at all. My intention was not to hurt Trump by attending the dinner. That is fake news. I love Donald Trump. Okay, here's the point. Here's the upshot. Other people will always take advantage of you to the extent that you let them. Right? If you have an employer who is paying you $20 an hour and you could get work for $25, $30, $40 an hour elsewhere, that employer will just keep paying you $20 an hour as long as he has to. Because if he has to raise your salary to keep you, then he'll do it. But otherwise, people will take advantage of you. People will reschedule you at work and not let you know so that you then look bad or you get calls at you know 5 a.m. in the morning or 10 o'clock at night. Hey, why aren't you here at work? So other people will impose on you unless you have a strong sense of self. And you can only have a strong sense of self if you fundamentally believe that you're a good person, that you're leading a, a good, solid life, that you're leading a disciplined life, that you're moving towards your goals. If you feel that if you're working 40 hours a week, you're a solid, productive worker, you're a solid citizen off work, then when people try to take advantage of you, try to manipulate you, you'll spot it. Now, what's the easiest way to manipulate people? By playing to their vanity. And so Trump thought he would get some news coverage by having dinner with Kanye, but that he could, he could twist it to his advantage, that he could take advantage of, of the news coverage to keep himself face and center of uh, his likely voters. But uh, Milo Yiannopoulos and Nick Fuentes and Kanye, they outmaneuvered him. So if you're honest with yourself, Right. If you're in touch with your own emotions, if you know, oh, I'm going to go to dinner with this disreputable character like Kanye West because I want the media attention. I want to be on the front page. Right. If you're honest with yourself, you're going to be much less vulnerable to manipulation. But if you're not honest with yourself, if you don't realize that, hey, you're going to go to a dinner with this disreputable character at a, a nadir of his career, right, and, and you're not honest about why you're doing that, then you're much more wide open for being taken advantage of. But if you're honest with your feelings, you're honest with your own motivations, then if something doesn't make sense to you, like uh, Kanye bringing along these people you don't know, then you'll, you'll feel that you're being manipulated and you'll be able to act much more effectively. But if you don't believe that you're fair dinkum, if you don't believe that you're a good solid citizen, if you don't believe that you're leading a, a righteous life, if you're not in touch with who you are, with your, your own motivations and feelings, then other people will just go to town on you and they will manipulate you. But if you're living in reality, right, and you know who you are, what motivates you, what you're feeling, much more difficult to take advantage of you. Uh, chat says, some of Nick's audience are incensed. However, he seems to go to many group of weddings, often congratulates friends for starting families. Yeah. That, that rant about dating women is gay. I don't think people should take it as anything more than comedy. It's, it's just the type of thing that you toss off when you're doing two hours of, of live streams a night. So let's have a look here. Let's analyze the Tim cast with Kanye West, Nick Fuentes, Milo Yiannopoulos, joining Tim Pool. And then uh, I've suggested... Uh... Um, that we bring in uh, Nicholas as a, as a enormous extra brain firepower that he is, um, most extraordinarily brilliant uh, political commentator of his generation, um, and he's uh... okay. So Milo is insinuating himself here with Nick Fuentes, Nick Fuentes's crowd by saying things that are ridiculous, but a lot of people are incredibly vulnerable to flattery. I, I 
have been much of my life. Just I know that thirst for admiration, and that makes you very easy to manipulate. When you recognize that you have an outsized thirst for admiration, and you learn to give yourself the admiration, attention, love that you so yearn for from strangers, then you can stand on your own two feet. You're much less susceptible to manipulation. Being treated just about as badly as anybody, so I thought he deserved to be in the room too. And um, yeah, that's, that's pretty much how we got together. So I have some questions about that, but let's we'll, we'll get through the dinner portion of you know how exactly this happened, what went down. So this is how you get in contact the three of you. How is it that Nick ends up invited to this dinner, and, and what happened? Well, he he was rolling with me. I was impressed with Nick, and I was like, just come to the dinner. And we had a uh, Karen Giorno uh, pick us up from the airport, and there was a lot of back and forth. There's another gentleman named Jamar Montgomery that was with us. It's a uh, he's an engineer at Boeing, and his. I'm telling him just that we should raise everyone's volume. Okay, cool. Um, and we sat there and it was like when Trump came in, we were, I said, do you want to sit alone? He's like, no, bring your friends in. So a big thing is like Trump had no idea who Nick Fuentes was. And, but this whole, I just, I just got to go right to the heart of this anti-Semite claim that's happening. Right. That's what, right. That's what Kanye wants to talk about. He doesn't really want to talk about the dinner. He primarily wants to talk about anti-Semitism accusations and uh, Tim Pool doesn't handle it well. This is something, if you read the definition, it, it says you can't claim that there's multiple people inside of banks or in media that are all Jewish or you're anti- Obviously, different groups are disproportionately successful in different areas. Blacks are disproportionately successful in many forms of sports and popular entertainment. East Asians are very successful in that they have very solid family lives. They do really well at school. They earn more money per hour than whites. They save more money. They are more law-abiding. They have fewer STDs, right? So different groups, Jews have areas where they're particularly influential, such as the entertainment industry, the news media, academia, law. Semitic. And that's the truth. Like, it's the truth. What are we talking about? And what, 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 what do you mean? You mean, I'm saying like, I've been. So when you're dealing with someone who is as mercurial as Kanye, you don't really want to start cutting him off right there, right? That's a tactical mistake because Kanye is the type of local explode and just walk out of the interview. So if I was conducting this interview, I wouldn't be cutting Kanye off. And label anti-Semite, right? So there's, there's different beliefs about our, our bloodlines, you know, like the documentary that Kyrie posted. And in general, America... So if that was me conducting the interview, I'd be writing notes down about follow-up questions. But first, got to get people comfortable. Like first, got to get people into the flow. And then you can start hitting them with more challenging questions. Has been left ignorant and history has been changed. So when we start questioning things, that question, the indoctrination, then you immediately get, you know, um, you said debanked or de what did you say happened to you? or Demonetized, deplatformed. De yeah, demonized, demonetized. And what's so beautiful about this time is everyone got to see what's really been happening and now we can really understand we can see that ron emmanuel was right next to obama and then jared kushner was right next to trump but, so, you, so we're, we're getting right into it i guess right I was, I was hoping to go for the news first before we got into all of this stuff uh i think i think the issue is uh, one way to put it is your so tim doesn't need to interrupt here right the the interview doesn't need his opinion and kanye is not interested in his opinion most people who you interview are not going to be interested in your opinion 
And yet so many interviewers just insist on dropping their opinion where it's not necessary. Expounding upon a localization issue that you've witnessed, right? Let, let, me, let me clarify. There are a handful of people that you see are Jewish in a certain place, and then you associate Judaism with the power, as, whereas I view that as... So he doesn't need to know how you view that, all right? The, the viewer doesn't need to know how you view that, all right? Um, so this is, this is unnecessary. This is, this is a major tactical blunder here by Tim Hall. It's not relevant to it. Like, yeah, you're substantially more powerful than I am, but I don't view what you're doing as an issue of black people. Right. He, didn't, he didn't need to add his opinion. This just interrupts the flow of the guest. Yeah, but have you ever heard the term the black vote? So it's okay to put us in one net, but it's not okay for me to put them in one. Yeah, Tim Pool always interrupts. He's, he's not a good interviewer. One net. Yeah, but I mean, that's the basis I, of the hypocrisy. So he's just jumping in, jumping in, jumping in. And your guess is going to get ticked off. People have been, have been thinking about and knowing about and realizing for decades. We were all wondering how this dam was going to break. Everybody in the country was wondering, what, what is the root of this hypocrisy? Why can people talk about white people a certain way? Why can't they talk about that group a certain way? And uh, the, the, most, the, the, the wretched and wicked and oppressive prevailing orthodoxy of uh, cancel culture, well, it turned out that the one thing that was going to break the dam was the biggest star in the world. And it took the biggest star in the world to do it. Um, and, and, and now the dam is broken. So let me, let me tell you my issue. I, I don't like identitarianism. You guys are from. No one cares about Tim Pool's issue. So Tim Pool is trying to make sure that the show doesn't get canceled by YouTube, all right? So I think this is why he is sticking his opinion in here where it's unnecessary. Like what that is. Well, yeah. they started yeah. it, and they've been visiting sure. on us. I, We're trying to break it. When I was asking you about running for uh, president, you, you immediately said, well, you know, you'd be good for the black vote. And I said, is that because I'm black? No, not just because of that. So is that, are you doing the same thing? I didn't say that was the only reason. I said it was because you're personable to the common person, and you probably would do well with the black vote, absolutely. Just because I'm black, because a lot of black people don't like me. Oh, of course. I think uh, I think race plays a role in a lot of things. Absolutely, and I think that's for. I think I think the I, the construct of race has really been forced upon us as just something for us to be woke about and just constantly talk about and use it as these like walls. Could but, you say the same thing about Judaism? So Tim just keeps interrupting, interrupting, interrupting. It uh, ticks people off. People don't like this, right? Not just Kanye. You have a guest, an ordinary guest, right? He would be annoyed and ticked off. When you're annoyed and ticked off, your war just kind of narrows and you're going to be much, much less appealing and, and compelling as a guest because you're just ticked off. Well, let's look at the facts of what I'm saying, though. If you say in this neighborhood where they gerrymander, there's this amount of time. So, hey, I wasn't doing that. I was just gerrymandering the lawyers and the Hollywood executives and the people at the bank that debanked me and then froze my accounts. You know, it's like we want to jump into protecting the idea that we can't put a net around something. Right. But that's been my job as a producer to take, uh, you know, a Roy Ayer sample and put a James Brown drum and put it within a two, two minute, three minute song. That's the way I actually think. And that's the way I talk. And now this morning I found out that they were trying to put me in prison because what they did was uh, I, put, I moved $140 million into uh, JP Morgan. And I said, I want to talk to Jamie Dimon. Like, look at me. I'm just going in naive, you know, multi-billionaire, like may, maybe Jamie Dimon will let me in on some deal flow. Wrong. And I'm just like <laughs> banging my hands like, I want to meet with Jamie. And I start complaining online. And then they debank me for complaining. And so I'm, I'm about to get debanked. They're like, you need to go to Trump's, the bank, AXO, whatever. You got to go. And I'm like, I've been trying to buy my own bank for the longest. And then we figured out how to get my own bank. It's like 50 million, 75 million. So I'm about to buy my own bank. But then as they're about to take the money out, here comes Adidas with a $275 million bill for marketing funds that they agreed upon. Because I said to them, hey, I'm the marketing. Give me the marketing fund, which proves by the response they got when they you know, stole the designs and said, we're going to not call them Yeezys anymore. So this is what I was already fighting Adidas for. So I'm fighting Gap. Get out of Gap. Fighting 
Adidas. And then I deal with this little bit of noise from, you know, Zionism from the fashion world where they use this plant named Gabby, who's obviously like some kind of CIA agent, knows nothing about fashion. This is a certain thing. When someone can't dress, you know that they're not like a fashion person. They're just there as like the society, like the control that they try to use with celebrities, which has now been broken, right? Because you know where it broke. And I'm, I'm, okay, I want to get on like LeBron in a second, but I'm going to come back to this and just talk about this morning where... Uh, you know, I'm not going to mention her name because she's a nice lady, but someone at Cohen Resnick tells me, and I tell my, all of my finance people never use the term a lot, but they said, okay, you're going to have to pay a lot of taxes. And that made me feel like they're just like waiting, like we finally got them. We finally can put them in jail. And I was like, can I still run for president in jail? I found out I could. So I was like, okay, that's, that's fine then. If you were Jeffrey Epstein, they wouldn't touch your bank account. They would allow you to break the rules, regulations, just like JP Morgan and Chase did, just like Deutsche Bank did. So there is an issue to bring up with that. But when it comes to the race stuff, I think this is an important discussion to have because what, what, I, think, I, I, have to, I have to complete this thought. You guys got to okay, go ahead, go ahead. All right, because I'm talking about literally finding out that they were trying to put me in prison this morning. Watch this. So this morning. Okay. So yeah, all these guys are interrupting and it doesn't help the show. It doesn't help the interview. It, it doesn't help the viewer. It's just uh, Tim Pool and this uh, Luke guy indulging themselves at the expense of the viewer. Yes. So not, you know, not come to my house this morning, but I found out, okay, so they froze, they put a $75 million hold on four of my accounts. And then they said, you owe a lot of taxes. It took me like six hours to find out how much a lot was. They said, well, around $50 million. Now I'm going to different CFOs like, okay, so would this be tax evasion? Because I'm obviously not the most financially literate person on the planet. I was just a child, basically. Like when you become famous, you, you stop growing at that point. I became famous at age 24 and I had handlers around. I had my mom around different things. And it was always like you go from one handler to the next handler to the next handler. So now I'm having, I, I, I get to actually learn how to run a company. I get to learn how to, uh, you know, uh, to count Really, I had I was like Pablo in a movie. It was like I didn't even know where to put the money, like literally making three hundred million dollars cash. But you're just like a high priced. You know, we're not going to use the S word just because it's like too passe to use it. But it's like next, you know, next year I was supposed Same. to make five hundred million dollars in royalties. And like no one needs this amount of money. But when I would work on homeless shelters and ideas, I'd have a contractor. We won't say what race. Um, and, <laughs> the, you know, they'd be tearing down the contracts. It's all about you know, position. It's not about the amount of money that you have. And, you know, to come in here, I feel like it's a setup to be like defending. I'm not going to go through another, like, I'm literally going to walk the F off the show if I'm sitting up here. Okay. He's about to lose the guest. So maybe stop interrupting and stop giving your opinion. Having to, you know, talk about, you can't say that it was Jewish people that did it when every sensible person knows that. I mean, John Stewart knows what happened to me and they took it too far. It was like American history X. Like my head was on the side of the curve. And the exact people that I called out kicked my head. We found out that my truck. Right. If you just let this guy rant, it's comedy gold, right? It's, it's revealing, entertaining, compelling, just letting this guy rant. Trainer was a MK Ultra uh, Canadian uh, intelligence. He, was, uh, yeah. he worked in the defense research and uh, development uh, in the Canadian military, essentially working on psyops in the guy? Canadian military. This is Harley Pasternak. <laughs> yeah, what I'm saying is, look, they tried to medicate me. They, I was exhausted. They wrongly diagnosed me. And they, 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 when I asked them, how much lithium did you want to put me on exactly? It took them four days to answer because they were embarrassed about the amount, right? And I refused to take this, right? You understand that if I had taken the medication, I would not be here and it would have been, oh, woe is, he was deeply troubled. We miss him. We love his music, though. Well, they would have Britney Spears, too. I mean, look, they were the Michael Jackson or, or worse. Yeah. So look at <laughs> what, what they did. Look what they did to Britney. When she went in, she was tired. She was exhausted. Yeah. She was in a bad way. But ten years of that medication wrecked her brain. You can see it now. Yeah. You can see there's not much of her left. You, you mentioned Pasternak was the name. Uh, yeah. Yes, Harley Pasternak. That's the that's the uh, text message that you yes. posted that we were talking about. Here's, 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 here's the So Tim Pool and this Luke Rudowski guy, they want a conversation. But a good interview and a good show is not a conversation. It's a performance, and. You stand back when you have a high-profile guest and you let the guest shine. 
Yeah. Before the show, obviously, I'm getting a bunch of messages from people. People are hitting me up and they're like, you shouldn't host them. They're anti-Semitic. They're white supremacists. They're racist. I do find the idea, I do find it funny or weird or whatever that, you know, Nick, they call you white supremacist. You're here working with or for, you know, one of the most powerful black men, one of the wealthiest and most famous. But uh, a lot of people were saying on the right, specifically, don't platform them. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, I want to I want to understand what they're thinking, why they're thinking it. They're part of they're involved in what may be the biggest news story of the past week. And we have an opportunity to sit down and, and talk because the them. red media controls both sides. I just said it as simple as possible. Jerry Kushner was next to Trump. Ron Emanuel was next to Obama. But see, Since 1940. Go ahead. I was say, is that an issue of these individuals? Like you, you're. See, he keeps interrupting him. Right, you can see why Kanye is getting ticked off. I'm not having. I'm going to get. I'm going to order with the last of my money that's available in a different account. I'm going to order a PJ before I sit and have another Lex Friedman setup conversation. When when I'm literally trying, they're trying to put me in jail for my opinion. But I, I'm I not. I'm not going to have that opinion. I don't care about people. The pe- those are bots that are trying to tell you. We realize. Look at Pence. He sold Trump out. You know what I'm saying? It's like I would have never. Uh, wanted to do anything that hurt Trump. I'm on, I'm on Trump's side. Trump said things that hurt me. He lied about me, but I mean, he's known for lying. And when people used to tell me that, you know, he's a liar, it's like, you know, I went into the trenches for Trump. That's another conversation. There was no one in my position that wore that hat and all of my surroundings exhausted me. It was like death by a thousand questions. I know I'm jumping to another thing, yeah. but what I'm saying is I know you got a rep for your, your, your people online, but it's no, like no, you got no. a person in real life that no. I, I'm not with it, bro. I lost the, I, I lost the money for the freedom of speech. And that's what makes me the only American that we know that really deserves to run the country because everyone else, your boy DeSantis, Trump, who Whoever they, they, they raise in a petri dish over on the Democrat side is, is going to play the game. Look, look. Like, okay, this is uh, Kanye just about to stop off the set. Let's see what uh, Tucker Carlson has to say. Good evening and welcome to Tucker Carlson. Tonight we're going to start with a quiz. What do you have when you find Sam Bankman Freed, Janet Yellen, and President Zelensky of Ukraine all together in one room? A federal grand jury proceeding? <laughs> That would be a good guess. Sam Bankman-Fried seems to have committed the biggest financial fraud in history. As the chair of the Federal Reserve, Janet Yellen bears direct responsibility for the destruction of the entire U.S. economy. President Zelensky, meanwhile, sits atop a money laundering scheme so brazen that Democrats won't even allow it to be audited. So, yes, these are three people who could badly use a federal investigation, but they're not getting one. Instead, they're being celebrated, held up as uniquely fascinating people by the New York Times. In case you missed it, today was the annual Deal Book Summit. That's a money-making event the newspaper advertises as a symposium with, quote, top business leaders. Tickets went for 2,500 bucks apiece. Sam Bankman-Fried, Janet Yellen, and Vladimir Zelensky were all there, apparently in their capacity as top business leaders. Thank you so very much, exclaimed the moderator, Andrew Ross Sorkin, when Sam Bankman-Fried finished speaking. Thank you, Sam Bankman-Fried, everybody. And with that, the audience applauded heartily. New York Times readers were clearly impressed by the Democratic mega-donor Sam Bankman-Fried, who also happens to be one of the most prolific thieves of all time. But whatever, he seemed like a nice kid. It was a pretty amazing display. But what's most interesting about an event like this is not what it tells us about the guests. At some point, history will render its judgment about them. But what it tells us about the people who invited the guests if it's okay to treat Sam Bankman-Fried like just another naughty celebrity, Sam Bankman-Fried, everybody! Applause, applause, applause! If you can do that, then who's off limits? Who's beyond the pale? Well, as it happens, the New York Times has spent the last few days telling us, delivering yet another hyperventilating lecture about who we're allowed to associate with and who we must avoid at all costs. And it really depends on political loyalty. Some people, the New York Times has explained, have views that are so reprehensible, these people are physically off limits. You cannot be in the same room with people like that. 
You can't talk to them. You can't ask them questions. Their opinions are like smallpox, communicable and deadly. These are the thought criminals, and thought crimes are the only crimes that matter. Other crimes, not such a big deal. Murder and rape and carjacking. Nah. As the New York Times has often told us, people who do, do those things are the victims of your racism. So they deserve compassion. So, by the way, do good liberals who stray outside the lines. Good liberals can always be forgiven, even when the things they've done are objectively very, very bad, like tanking the U.S. economy or stealing billions from investors and using it to buy Bahamian real estate, or bringing the entire world to the brink of nuclear war and getting rich while you do it. Liberals can still do these things, and you can still heartily applaud them, because in the end, you know their hearts are in the right place. They believe the right things. So with that in mind, it probably is not a surprise that no one at the New York Times bothered to ask Zelensky today where exactly all the money has gone. No one demanded an accounting of the billions of your tax dollars that seem to have disappeared into the pockets of Ukrainian oligarchs in tracksuits, because asking would have been rude. He was our guest. So instead, the New York Times gave Zelensky an opportunity to demand much more of your money, which, of course, he promptly took. Here's part of it. On November 15th, the uh, Biden administration submitted a new aid request of $37.7 billion, which, if passed, would bring the total amount that the U.S. Uh, has provided in, in, uh, in, in assistance to $105.5 billion. Um, we're going to be speaking with former Vice President Mike Pence a little bit later, and there has been a sentiment uh, among Republicans who now control the House in the United States from Kevin McCarthy, who said there should not be a blank check. What do you tell them? We are absolutely open and we are thankful for the assistance. It's not quite correct to speak about 100 billion as a value of the war for the United States. The value is uh, lives of people. If Ukraine does not stand through this war, the war will spread into other territories and maybe even to other continents. For, uh, our people is the uh, biggest value. Tell me how much our people cost. I don't know. <laughs> okay. So support me or Putin's going to invade Atlanta. And by the way, you have no choice because if you object to sending billions more to the very people who gave a no-show job to Hunter Biden, you're a bad person. You don't care about Ukrainian lives. You're a moral monster. Now, moral blackmail this crude does not typically work because nobody with self-respect would stand for it. What? Settle down, son. Get the Germans to pay for it. It's their continent. That's what a normal person would say, someone who had self-respect. Unfortunately for the rest of us, Congressman Michael McCall of Texas has no self-respect, so he folded immediately. And that matters because McCall is the top Republican on the House Foreign Affairs Committee. So just in case that you imagined that throwing out Nancy Pelosi and electing a Republican Congress, a huge victory, would mean that somebody would push back against Joe Biden's lunatic and completely anti-American foreign policy priorities, oh, you were mistaken. Because Michael McCall just informed us that because we're good people— and so is Zelensky. We're going to be sending Mr. Zelensky and his pals in tracksuits billions more of your money. Watch. And I want to pick up where Colonel Milburn left off. He believes that there should be longer range weapons sent to Ukraine. Would you approve of that? 
100 percent. He's absolutely correct. I mean, I, my criticism of this administration was before the invasion, we wouldn't put weapons in. And since the invasion, we've slow walked this process. But we are going to provide more oversight, transparency and accountability. We're not going to write a blank check. Does that diminish our will to help the Ukrainian people fight? No, but we're going to do it in a responsible way. And I think it's very important that the American people understand what's at stake here. So the U.S. military, not Ukraine's military, our military, the one that's supposed to protect our country, is running out of equipment and manpower. But just so we're all clear about what Michael McCall's priorities are, we're sending advanced weapon systems, yet more of them, to Ukraine. And that's in addition to what we've already sent, which is bigger than the entire Russian military budget. So if that's not insulting enough, and of course the point of this is to insult you and to degrade you and to make you fully aware that your country's interests come last because you come last on the list of priorities, they're going farther than that. We've also decided to pay Ukraine's energy bills. Now, it's kind of odd that we're doing that at a time when we have our first real energy crisis since the mid-1970s. A manufactured crisis, but a crisis nevertheless. A crisis that is causing Americans to freeze in their homes because they can't afford heating oil. That means it's a perfect time to send energy to our friends in Ukraine and the whole region. Here's Tony Blinken. I announced that the United States will commit over $53 million to send equipment to help stabilize Ukraine's energy grid and keep Ukraine's power and electricity running. We've also submitted a request to Congress for $1.1 billion to secure Ukraine and Moldova's energy sector and restore their energy supply. So why is this continuing when, of course, Joe Biden could call Zelensky, who effectively works for him? I mean, a close family connections there, of course. His son worked in Ukraine. Could call Zelensky and say, you know, no mas. Get the money from Europe or let's wrap this thing up. People are dying. The rebuilding costs of this country are beyond what we can pay. This is really a dead end. Let's come to a settlement. And of course, that could happen in about a week if they wanted it to. But they don't want that. They want the war to keep going. Why is that? Because <laughs> everyone's getting rich. And so the one thing you're not allowed to say is that, hey, maybe we should stop this war because, of course, the cash spigot would stop flowing. And that's why at the Deal Book Summit, the top business leader, Zelensky, in fact, he is really a top business leader, if you want to be honest about it, went after Elon Musk because Elon Musk suggested maybe we should get a peace deal. Here he is. It seems that Elon began to change his opinion and we began to hear all kinds of appeals. Uh, I don't know if somebody is making an influence on him or he's making those choices himself. I always say very uh, openly, if you want to understand what Russia has done here, come to Ukraine and you will see this with your own eyes, without uh, any extra words. And after that, you will tell us how to end this war, who started it and when we can end it. <laughs> oh, all perfectly reasonable. Can't have peace. Send more billions. So what's interesting is that this last few days has been like the few days before that. There's been a lot of moral outrage in Washington about bad ideas. And of course, some ideas are bad on both sides for sure. But ideas aren't criminal. Actions are criminal. And as always, the real criminals are getting away with it and getting richer in the process. Pedro Gonzalez noticed all of this. Thank heaven. He's an editor at Chronicles. He joins us tonight. So, Pedro, I'm, you know, I have no idea who you voted for. I assume you voted Republican, um, and a lot of people did. 
with the hope that someone would put the brakes on a foreign policy that clearly doesn't help the United States, in fact, hurts the United States, integrates the United States. And now we learn that it's full speed ahead. How did that happen? Well, Tucker, thanks for having me. That's a good question. It's one that Ronna McDaniel seems like she wants to figure out, which we presume is why she just formed a new GOP advisory council to inform the direction of the Republican Party. Right now, as you noted, that direction looks like helping Biden line the pockets of defense contractors and overseeing a massive wealth transfer from struggling Americans to one of the most... Okay, so some good points there in that Tucker Carlson segment. Number one, we've been focused for the past week on how awful it is that Donald Trump had dinner with Kanye West and Nick Fuentes, but the New York Times gets to host Sam Bankman-Fried at an event is... is Nick Fuentes is really more evil a person than Sam Bankman-Fried. So, yeah, the, the New York Times wants to tell us, like, who we're permitted to talk to and not talk to while they host an event featuring Sam Bankman-Fried. And then Zelensky, leader of Ukraine. It's not that important. It's the situation that's the boss there. It's the situation that's important because it's the situation that could very well give rise to a nuclear war. And uh, John Mearsheimer, political scientist at the University of Chicago, says that uh, if Russia set off a nuclear weapon in Ukraine, he thinks the most likely U.S. response is not to retaliate with nuclear weapons, not to retaliate with conventional weapons, but to push for a ceasefire. So, of course, the U.S. might respond with weapons and we might get an escalation so that it's Russia versus NATO. We would edge closer and closer to the nuclear precipice. Uh, But uh, Mishima speculates that that, uh, Russia setting off a nuclear weapon in Ukraine, which they'd only do if they felt like they were fighting for their own survival, that that would finally convince the United States that there needed to be a ceasefire and an end to this war. So... The U.S. has had many opportunities to back away from the precipice of a war with Russia since 2008, and the U.S. has consistently walked closer and closer to the precipice of nuclear war. And as John Mearsheimer says, we have a non-trivial chance of a nuclear war with Russia, which could very well mean the end of life as, as we know it. At the New York Times Deal Book Summit a few hours ago was a top business leader. Can't overstate how weird it was. At one point, Andrew Sorkin from the New York Times, who promoted Sam Bankman-Fried on television at length in previous months and years, asked how customers could learn to be safe online, as if Sam Bankman-Fried just didn't rip off his own customers. (laughs) But the main takeaway from the whole thing is that Sam Bankman-Fried isn't stupid. He knows he's bulletproof. He knows the Democratic Party and the SEC and his friend Gary Gensler won't touch him. So watch Sam Bankman-Fried explain that actually he's not very worried about criminal charges. How concerned are you about criminal liability at this point? So I don't think that, I mean, obviously, I don't don't personally think that I have, uh, you know, but I I think the real answer is that's not, it sounds weird to say, but but I think the real answer is that's not what I'm focusing on. I mean, look, I've had a bad month. Um, this has not been a fun for me, but that's not what matters here. I've had a bad month. It's all about me and my personal journey, but being held accountable by regulators, the Justice Department, the U.S. Congress, these are my friends. I paid for them. 
boy, if there's ever been a clear window into the deep corruption we really need to get rid of if we're going to return to representative democracy, it's that right there. So Sang Bankman-Fried seems so confident that he's untouchable that he admitted in public to commingling funds between FTX, his crypto exchange, and a separate company he controlled. That's the kind of thing that regulators would normally care about, but in this case, for some reason, didn't. Watch. FTX didn't have bank accounts. It didn't have any bank accounts globally. We were trying to get them. Um, it took us a while, it took us a few years. Um, and, you know, there are customers who wanted to wire money to FTX. And so I think in the meantime, um, some of them were wiring money to Alameda Research to get credited on FTX. And uh, I think that was a substantial sum. Uh, and I think that the FTX's internal accounting did correctly, effectively try to debit Alameda for those funds. You know, the New York Times is not a TV show, it's a newspaper. And when they want to find out about somebody, we can speak from firsthand experience, they put a whole bunch of reporters on the story for months. And they may interview the person they're writing about, but they also interview a lot of other people. And they create a full account of what they claimed happened. They're not doing that with this guy. They're bringing him on to allow him to whitewash what he did. Aware that he may have had a bad week, as he just said, Bankman-Fried tried to do some damage control. Watch this. Was there commingling of funds? That's what it appears like. It appears like there's a, been a, a genuine commingling of the funds that are of FTX customers that were not supposed to be commingled with your separate firm. I didn't knowingly commingle funds. I wasn't trying to commingle funds. Vivek Ramaswamy is the founder and executive chairman of Strive Asset Management and deeply familiar with the world of finance. He joins us tonight. Vivek, thanks so much for coming on. So what was lacking, I, I felt, in all of this was the moral outrage you would associate with someone who apparently stole billions from, like, retirement funds. But the New York Times treated him like, yeah, you know, maybe he got a little, you know, you did some bad things or whatever. But there's no, like, it's not like he's Donald Trump or something, right? Like, what is that? You know, the thing that was striking about this, Tucker, is it actually reminded me of a lot of what we saw in the aftermath of the 2008 financial crisis, where you had firms that, again, positioned themselves like they wanted to be the good guys, the Goldman Sachs, the Morgan Stanleys. And in fact, the difference back then was that they even got bailed out by the government directly at the yeah. public fisc. Now, here in the case of SBF, this is a guy who wore T-shirt and shorts. And the thing that was fascinating for me for watching that, Tucker, today wasn't so much SBF. He's really good at deflection, using a lot of technocratic language to deflect accountability. The thing that was actually interesting was looking at the people in the audience, nervously yes. laughing, distancing themselves from him. And to me, when I was thinking about what happened in 2008, Tucker, I think the interesting part of this is the people in that audience, the other financial elites who now are trying to distance themselves from the guy who wore a T-shirt and shorts— actually are not all that different from him in kind. They may be different in degree, but not in kind. And I think that's, that's the thing that people actually struggle with with this SBF story if they're in elite finance. When they look themselves in the mirror and look at the kinds of things that happened in 2008, you know what? It's an uncomfortable parallel and an uncomfortable similarity. And in a certain sense, he's just one of them and they're just one of him. That was one of my takeaways from actually watching today. Well, that's, 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 the, that's the deepest truth of this whole thing. That's exactly right. Okay, so the, the chat says Sam Bankman-Fried obviously doesn't have a lawyer. His parents are both professors at Stanford Law School. His father works for FTX. His father says that they're going to spend all their available cash 
defending Sam Bankman-Fried against possible criminal charges. This is his father three months ago speaking on the FTX thing I, podcast. I hear a lot when speaking to teams that need legal help is they seem to run into a lot of trouble because they have a hard time finding like the right type of lawyer to work yeah. with them. They have a hard time really knowing what they need to do. So they end up in a lot of exploration, which is very expensive rather than like execution. I was curious if you had any tips for companies, young companies that need legal help on how. Uh, yeah, that's uh, Joe Bankman, Stanford law professor, Barbara Freed is Sam Bankman Freed's mother, both Stanford law professors. Jim Bowden in the chat, Jim, I went past uh, your neighborhood yesterday. I took the ferry to Parramatta and uh, I, I almost texted you to, to wave as I was taking the ferry by. So Jim says, Luke, would you agree that uh, Sam Bankman Freed is one of those valued untouchable Jews beyond criticism? Well, you followed any news report, Sam Bankman Freed is far from beyond criticism. Now, there was a New York Times article that went easy on him, but Sam Bankman-Fried has been, I think, the most criticized man in the world the past month. So if that's that's beyond criticism, I, I, I don't think so. I should check in on Tim Pool in real life. There's the chat. Okay, so Zelensky is not important, all right? It's just the structure of the situation. That means that we risk World War Three. Right? I played a little bit there of uh, Joe Bankman being interviewed. He's Sam Bankman-Fried's father. Let's get to this is where Kanye walks. Here's out. what I was trying to get yeah. to. I, 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 you went right into the anti-Semite thing. I think it's something that should be talked about. But if you if you start bringing this up, you're going to ask my opinion on it. I'm going to disagree with you. I... He's not asking your opinion. Tim keeps interrupting, keeps interjecting with his opinion, and it's not asked for, not by the viewer. I didn't ask your opinion on it. You no, jumped but, into it. But, but you, I don't care about your opinion. I like your opinion on how we win an election, but I don't care about anybody's opinion. Bro, I lost. They tried to put me in jail. They blocked two, $2 billion I had. Like when I told Farrakhan, I said, look, oh, is it anti-Semitic for me to say his name? I like, like, I, I the told minister. Him, yeah, the minister. Like, I told, <laughs> Obama which, met with him, too. Oh, he was. Yeah, I mean, the uh, Jewish people allowed uh, Obama to meet with the minister. You know, so uh, Farrakhan said, well, did he have the money? The contract for the next four years, if I hadn't done anything, would have been $500 million a year for four years. What I was fighting for was the IP so my children could, uh, you know, um, I'm sorry, just sometimes I think about seven thoughts at one time because anything I see, I come up with like seven answers to it and then just choose <laughs> what it is. But but I, the thing is when I said my children, the reason why my my brain kind of blocked because it's like God is saying, you know, your, your children are going to be okay. The, you know, baby mama's got money, right? God is using me. He's breaking me down, removing all of the, you know, richest person. Yeah, his children are going to be okay because what matters is do they have money? And Kim Kardashian has money, so the kids are going to be okay. All right, parents having money is just one factor in whether or not your kids turn out okay. Most important factor is their genetics. But uh, I would think that having a mother who releases a sex tape to become famous would probably take quite a toll on the kids, even if she's rich. And all of this, so I can serve him. And the more and more those things are taken away from me, the more I can be empty and be a vessel and be able to be used. And right now it's like, you're not going to take, if, if we can't, you're not going to take my pain away, right? The Jewish people say, it's the Holocaust, this happened, and you can't say anything about it. We can't take their pain away. No one's going to denounce the fact that they tried to lock me up. That's what, because every time I'm just holding stride and it's like, I didn't, I thought I was more Malcolm X, but I find out I'm more MLK because as I'm getting hosed. They tried to lock me up. Well, Probably to, to whatever extent that you're in legal danger or in danger of being locked up, I'm going to venture is 99% because of your own choices, not because of something that they are trying to do to you.
closed down every day by the press and financially I'm just standing there. And when, when I found out that they tried to put me in jail, it was like a dog was biting my arm and I, 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 I almost shed a tear almost, but I still walked in stride through it. Yeah. I, I think I think they've been extremely unfair to you. I who think. is they though? We can't Cor- say who they Cor- is. Can we? Press. I'm not using. The, I don't use the word as, as the way I guess you guys use. I'm, I'm talking it is about them though, isn't it? I mean, because <laughs> no. it, because when you think about it, consider it. In 2018, what do you mean it's not? It, what, what do I mean? Like, uh, uh, okay, so how about are you leaving? Are you afraid of the press? He's on. I'll say it right now. Um, you guys, I, I, you guys want to bring that stuff up? And have, have the discussion. Not have, not like, like, have the discussion. Like you, you think yeah, he's going to come in here and say, "Here's my pain, here's my suffering." I'm going to say, "I hear you." And then he's going to say, "And it was Jewish people." And I'm going to be like, "Okay, but don't you consider?" It? So I'm not going to do this. I, I refuse. Go, uh, make sure he's cool. All right, go for it. Luke and I love the conversation. So, yeah, Tim, you're repeatedly interrupting him. You are interjecting with your own opinion where it was unnecessary. He could have done a lot better as a host. Right, so we'll is, and uh, before we do, I want to point out, uh, yes, you're welcome, Michael Malice Show. Uh, I don't know, YouTube, and do you run it through any portals on web, your website or anything at this point? No, just it's on YouTube, I was it's on a, Spotify, it's on, uh, it's on uh, Rumble, it's on Odyssey. I was on, on an episode, if you guys haven't seen it, it was excellent. Michael's a great interviewer. It was a lot of fun. Very fun. And I haven't seen you since then, so. That's true. Good to see you, buddy. You look good. Thank you. Yeah, we got Serge hanging out. Hey, low energy Serge Dupriel. What's up, everybody? How you doing, YouTube? Take it away, Tim. Let's 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 talk about where's my bar is Serge. Very weak, very low energy. Okay, so this was streamed 23 hours ago. I do want to mention one quick thing too. I had a phone call with Google today. They're panicking over Section 230 reform. Uh, So the Supreme Court has agreed to take up a case pertaining to recommendations, and so YouTube is now actively lobbying prominent creators. I suppose I got an email and it asked me to sign up for a certain date to talk to their head of policy. It's very nice, but uh, I was uh, personally offended at the things that he was saying. So I'm not trying to be mean to the guy. We're going to talk again probably tomorrow. But uh, it seemed like they were trying to lobby me to agree that YouTube should have the right to be politically biased and be immune fr- from defamation, which I absolutely do not. So we'll talk about that too, but we got to get it. Oh, as though it's important that uh, Tim is offended. All right. Saying I'm offended, that's like a girl move. I-, I can't believe any guy would try to make that an argument. I'm offended. I mean, I had that done to me the other day. I'm offended because I was making jokes about lovers lane. Who cares if you're offended? I'm 56 years of age. I've never been offended by anyone's opinion, anyone's political perspective, religious belief. It doesn't offend me. Like what kind of namby-pamby wimp gets offended? Into this stuff. So here's the first story. Yeah. Many of you may have seen what happened last night on this show. And um, I have concerns that we had Ye, Fuentes, and Milo on the show. A lot of people messaged me before and saying, why are you having them on? What they're using you. They have an agenda. And, I'm, and, and this is Who's funny. Who's they? Who's they? No, 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 listen, listen. They say, they say uh, they as in general. Arrived. Watch. After a knock and announce, the front door was opened by Mr. Pelosi. The 82-year-old did not immediately declare an emergency or try to leave his home, but instead began walking several feet back into the foyer toward the assailant and away from police. But the very same details have been reported by NBC's local affiliate in San Francisco. And local NBC sources tell Fox Digital they believe Miguel Almaguer and the affiliate had different sources that offered the very same information. Remember, Almaguer didn't just write a very controversial story and have it edited without the brass at NBC signing off on it. Doesn't work like that. Somebody approved the story and likely several people approved it. And just as likely several people have now signed off on saying nothing. Tucker. (laughs) That is true. Spoken like a man who knows television. The great Trace Gallagher, available for a full hour on Fox News at night, midnight, every night, Eastern Time. So of all professional sports, the NHL, hockey, probably has the most conservative fan base. And owners. More than 75% of National Hockey League owners donate to Republicans. Phil Anschutz, for example, who's legitimately conservative, 
owns the L.A. Kings. He's a mega donor to the Republican Party. So it's a little weird, or maybe it's not weird at all, that the NHL has decided to push woke propaganda on its fans. And boy, is it. Gary Bettman, the commissioner of the NHL and league vice president Kim Davis, now say they want fewer white people playing hockey. Looking at the hockey landscape in five years, what does progress look like to both of you? Commissioner Bettman. To me, to, to me progress looks like uh, that we become more reflective of the communities in which our teams play, that there are more black players of both sexes, players of color of both sexes, and that we are more diverse than we've been. And there's Five no- years from now, I want hockey to be on the lips of, of, of boys and girls of color, just the way, you know, soccer and basketball and baseball is on their lips, something that they see as accessible. So... Attacking white people. Okay, I guess it's kind of common. You don't really notice it. It's totally immoral, by the way, but it happens a lot. And then they're getting even more esoteric. This is an actual tweet from the league, the NHL. Quote, trans women are women, trans men are men, non-binary identity is real. None of which is true, all of which is insane, but they just stated it like fact. So Theo Fleury is a hockey legend in Canada and the United States. He played in the league for a very long time, most of his life. He Okay, comment in the chat. Can you go sculling on in Sydney Harbour? I've never seen that. Maybe you can. Comment in the chat. Have I read the book by Roger Ailes? You are the message. Yes, I have read it, and some parts of it are, are very powerful. So Roger Ailes knew a thing or two. General people yeah, messaging me. Cast, they're right? using you, Tim. They're Tim using you. And I said, yeah. I, for all of them, why do you think people come on this show? Yeah. Do you think they're coming on because they love me and they want to hold my hand and smile and look at my face? Or do you think they're trying to promote a book? Do you think they're trying to get a message out? They're trying to promote their Twitter accounts. They have ideas they want to share. Of course, everyone's using everybody. I have guests on so we can make an interesting show. It's our business. They come on because it's an opportunity for them to to share or sell or whatever. I thought we were friends. <laughs> think again. That's that's my, my, we're only having you on because you make us laugh. Okay. I guess no, I'm a clown. <laughs> so I got up. I, I, I woke up about uh, 3.15 this morning and turned on the Australia versus Denmark game. So Denmark's about the the tenth ranked soccer team in the world. Australia is about the thirtieth, thirty fifth ranked soccer team in the world. Australia won one nil, unbelievable breakaway goal. So Denmark had three times as much possession of the ball as Australia, but Australia won. Australia is through to the knockout round. The United States is through to the knockout round. Mexico is not going through to the knockout round. So. Yes, I'm, I'm absolutely loving the World Cup. Go Australia, go America. <laughs> so here's, here's what I want to say, because um, right now there's a lot of stories, you know, uh, Trump is being told that he's got to announce these guys. There was a story that popped up on Fox, Fox 5, Kanye West spotted and Frederick are storming off a of podcast. Here's the potential scenario, to be fair. The scenario is they abruptly left the show. They were on it. Ye didn't like that I was not agreeing with him or that I was pushing back in any capacity, got up and stormed off. Milo and Nick working for Ye wouldn't stick around and left. Immediately, they called a charter company to schedule a private plane who was very, very, they were very lucky that a hot crew, it's what they're, they're on the ground ready to go, was available nearby and was able to then dispatch a plane to Frederick. So it's really important to Tim to try to make the argument that uh, this, this walkout was, was staged. I don't think it was. Tim doesn't want to look at his own mistakes, his own problems as an interviewer, his own unnecessary interjections of his own opinions, his own unnecessary interruptions of a big-time guest. Tim doesn't want to look at his responsibility for that interview going south. 
that uh, Nick Fuentes might have bypassed normal security protocols. Secrets, so on and so forth. I don't understand how, if you're running for president, and this is the scenario in your home, you're going to have dinner with someone, anyone, and be like, oh yeah, you know, bring, bring your buddies, and not be paranoid, even just for security reasons. Who are these people? Are they spies? Are they so on and so forth? I don't understand that. We, we struggle with this here. When we're, when we're bringing people in, we have to be, we have to send this big, long-winded email about who's allowed here, what this means, yeah. vetted by you, stuff like that. Now, I wouldn't say it's like we're that strict where we... But you know. you're not the president. Exactly. You're not exactly. a former president. It makes it absolutely beggars belief. And the other thing is like Jenk Weger had a tweet about like, this isn't a surprise. This is who Trump hangs out with white supremacists. It's like, when someone's the president, you know exactly who they hang out with. You know every minute of their day, what we have for dinner and so on and so forth. It's not a big secret. Their, their, their schedule is very public and very known. And it's, it's a very big deal. This is the president of the United States. In this case, the former president of the United States. So what Trump is saying does not uh, cut ice with me. And what else is crazier to me, in all seriousness, his daughter converted to Judaism, right? So this is something that obviously, and I think one of his other kids married a Jewish woman. So he, the joke is like, what's the difference between a New York Times reader and Donald Trump? Donald Trump's grandchildren are going to be Jewish. It's like, if he has this in his family, for him to be like, well, oops, I didn't know. That's just confusing. You can- it's not confusing that you'd have lunch or dinner with someone who said some anti-Jewish things. I assure you, half of Jews have said negative things about Jews. It's not like Nick Fuentes is this extraordinary creature, just completely unrecognizable from the rest of the human condition, right? People say negative things about blacks, about Christians, about Jews, about Muslims, right? Uh, Nick Fuentes and his anti-Semitism aren't unusual, right? People say negative things about our groups all the time. Did he just trusted Kanye and was like, if you want to bring whoever. But why would he you trust Kanye? Like, just tr- I think, first of all, he has this, this boner for celebrities that is really demented because that explains why he's endorsing. Yes, I think this point by malice is a stronger one. Dr. Oz, who believed Justice right. Smollett, who was for trans kid surgeries, you know, who had the whole laundry list of like, you know, very lefty ideas. Herschel Walker, who's just a football star uh, for Senate. Like the, the love affair uh, Donald Trump has for people who are blue checks is demented. I want to, I, I think Ian's right about one thing, that this guy's looking for friends. I can't speak to the things that I, any of them have said in the past. Like what, what I should say is like, obviously they've said deplorable things, testable things. But what I genuinely believe is we had Milo on the show a couple weeks ago. And he talked about supporting Trump. He talked about vengeance. He wasn't talking about this stuff. It was, it was, it, his focus was different. Then he gets involved with... with... Uh, Milo is not the most stable character. Uh, Kanye West, not the most stable character. Uh, Nick Fuentes, he's been fairly stable. Yeah, brings in Fuentes. And all of a sudden, this is like a particular component of his, his career, his personality. What I think happens is when you cancel people, they go in the only direction they can. Wait, I, I disagree because I have receipts for Milo. That is a good point. The, the more you cancel people, the more likely they are to go off in extreme directions. Well, because when this all came out, I wrote a book about this. There's a chapter about Milo in my book, and then you write, I think Milo is very, very charming. He's very, very witty. He's certainly very intelligent. Uh, and of all the people who got canceled, the reason he got canceled, I think, was one of the more BS reasons. Uh, he was the victim of childhood abuse. Uh, he spoke out about it in a kind of tongue-in-cheek manner. I don't begrudge any. And I, I think this is good analysis to hear from from Malice, Michael Malice, that's, that's a fair One who suffered through something like that, how they should deal with the situation. And he was basically saying things like, okay, you know, this is something that I'm, he's kind of rationalizing. Like, I'm yeah. glad this happened to me at a young age, as opposed to being like, holy crap, you know, I got my innocence taken up, taken from me at a time when it shouldn't have. So I think the fact that that, he was just like, you know, get out, like everything's ruined for you because it's- Okay, let's uh, look at a clip here, Gavin McGinnis at the- And there's the, uh, no taking that back. That's what it is. You could argue till you blow in the face, but- there's never any taking back what the Proud Boys are and what they're they are now. Yeah, I don't. They're perceived as right. So I think the guys that just, especially in Britain, the guys that they go, our meetings are secret anyway. I don't care what you have heard. Like we know what they've heard about the Masons and all that other stuff. Right. So go ahead, talk. Yeah. If I'm not rallying, I'm not getting arrested, so you'll never know who I am and go fuck yourself. Yeah, yeah. You can think that I, like, meet with Trump every day, but I don't right. care. 
I have to assume like the, the, the fact that I'm, you know, I, I do a show with you, what I've said in my own shit, and the fact that I uh, broadcast on Cozy, especially now, like everything Nick does now. Dude, he's trending it, every day. It, he is huge right he's now. Trending number one today. Yesterday, yeah. the top trend was Kanye, and I think the bottom, which it only shows you like six or seven, yeah. the bottom one was Milo. Yeah. And I said, I said, to, I texted him, I'm like, dude, you're the top and the bottom trending subject. And he goes, this dead naming is getting ridiculous. Oh, no. It's not Kanye <laughs> West. It's funny. yay. And I'm not Milo anymore. I'm low. Low? <laughs> oh, that's great. Yeah. We were having a little uh, twi- uh, a text discussion about that whole thing and whether, because people have asked me, you know, would you have them on? Duh. And in a second, I would. I actually, you know, uh, E-Rock, come on in here. E-Rock. <laughs> oh. Oh, yeah. Oh. E-Rock's not here. Uh, I w- if E-Rock was here, I would say to him, reach out. Reach out to Milo. Uh, reach out to Are you Nick. getting like everyone you've ever known to go, you should ask Ye if he wants to do an interview. I'm like, what an idea. Uh, yeah, yeah. I haven't thought of that. Wow. I haven't thought of that. Hey, you should get the Rolling Stones to play your birthday party. Uh. You love, you love Satisfaction. Love you like Jumpin' Jack Flash. That would be you so love cool. all their songs. Have them come to your house and do a show. You know? Hey, you've spoken to Tucker twice. Uh. You should get on his show. You should get back <laughs> on, get on his- you should go back on Joe Rogan. I'll get a 21 year old emailing me. You should go back on Joe Rogan. <laughs> yeah. Well, you're hired. I think, uh, Mr. Ideas, you know, that's an idea guy. That's someone who's I thinking like it. outside the box. Great yeah. Idea. I should do that. No shit. So yeah, E-Rock, um, cause we, obviously Nick and Milo, we both know them very well. Yeah. Uh, yay. Not very familiar. We're not best friends. But I wouldn't say best friends. I would say besties. But we've all spoken with Nick and, and Milo in between. Uh, and they would have complete free access. Okay, what about this? Hi, I'm Ye. I will come on your show. Yeah. You can't say anything. I, okay. I don't want to hear you talk. At all. You can do like, uh-huh, and what do you think of that? I like a good but, uh-huh. But I don't, I don't want you to interrupt me or, or yeah. push back on anything I say. Okay. And I'm going to talk about, I'm going to deny the Holocaust. I'm going to talk about Jews controlling the media. Right. I'm really, I'm going to go DEFCON 3 on Death the Jews. Con, DEFCON 3. For two hours. Okay. Do you want it or not? What time? <laughs> I'm inclined to, you know what you could do with that is you could do it, right? And then at the beginning, you say, uh, I'm about to show an interview. Uh, it's going to get me canceled. Um, here's how I feel about the subject, but our deal with- La, la, la. Here's what everyone that you're even saying that for is saying. La, 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 la. Why would you even say it, Gavin? Why would you even say that knowing that you're trying to preface it? Who are you trying to please by saying, hey, by the way, the only reason I'm saying- You're not apologizing. You're saying, here's my view. But who are you even trying to appease by saying, hey, um- I just want to let you know, we're going to have him on, but his opinion and whatever you're going to say, no one cares. You're a piece of shit. I'm a piece of shit. He's a piece of shit. That's how they see it. And no amount of, of prefacing is going to change how anyone feels about you putting yay on your show. Ain't going to change it. Well, obviously everyone wants him on the show, but of course. So you, you, then the problem is people just can it's, use me. It's nitroglycerin that you're fucking juggling. Everyone wants to see someone juggle nitro. <laughs> Why? Because they're juggling it? No, they want to see you drop it and explode. Because that's exactly what people want to see when they have uh, yay on their shows. I'm not worried about being canceled. I can't be any more canceled no, than I am. we're all as canceled as we can be. Unbelievably canceled. My fucking cousins are Crazy canceled. 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 My accountant is canceled. My architect okay. is canceled. <laughs> but I just don't like the idea of I don't have the right to speak on a subject on my own show. Okay. I don't like that you can walk into my house, say whatever you want, and I don't yeah, get my yeah. two cents. I would never say, like, that's bullshit, and you were fucking piece of shit and, and interrupt yeah. you and all that. But I think I'm, I'm good enough at doing interviews to say, I get what you're saying, but what about blah, blah, blah. Okay. Has, have you seen him say anything that you would have to refute based on your own ideology or, or the fact that you want to let the audience know that you don't agree with him with certain things? Would you feel so strongly that you'd be like, hey, hey, I need to say this how I feel about it? Yeah. 
I do have that one thing. Give me an example. Yes, Jews are wildly overrepresented in the media. They're 2% of the population. They're 80% of the media. Yes, the majority of the media is out to destroy America. But my two cents is that liberal elites, liberal white elites are out to destroy America. Jews are overrepresented in that group because Jews have high IQs. Jews are overrepresented in medicine. They're overrepresented in math. They're overrepresented in a lot of high IQ things because that culture has put uh, a lot of emphasis on education. How you call them smart? (laughs) You're like Hitler. But like Palestinians, for example, have the exact opposite values. Their thing is like, is he strong? Right, right. Wrong man. Like intellect, knowing the Quran, they couldn't give less of it. Yeah, yeah. More of a in Judaism, like studying the Torah all day is a very noble pursuit. They're like old fashioned Catholics in that. Discipline and, and intellect and, and Yeah, and yeah. being strong and fighting. Sure. Don't actually don't do it. No, no, like, no. But my Jewish neighbor the other day beat up and sue. I was getting a weight set and, and I was like, he goes, You're gonna put it in the garage or in your house? I go, I think I put it in the garage so I can drop the weights and stuff. And he goes, Okay, well you you have to get someone installed because you're Jewish. And I was like, I'll just put it in. And he goes, Oh, uh, we're Jews, we don't do that. Oh. We get we have guys do that. And this guy's like he works out, he's a bodybuilder. He's like, I don't screw things into cement. I don't know how to do that. Because that culture is like, I don't handle that kind of stuff. But when he took it off the truck, I'd go, wait, wait, wait. <laughs> wait. Got it. And I might, I might also throw out uh, a lot of the people you're talking about are women. I'm an anti-femite. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And maybe your problem is that too. So I, I might slightly muddy the waters with that interjection. But I don't like the idea of someone comes on my show and I have to be their bitch and just sit there. I, like I, no, I hear you. I, I hear that. I'm not going like to say, you should be ashamed of yourself. Now, do you think... Your rebuttals or retorts or... They wouldn't even be that. They'd be hey, questions. I, I know, questions. Do you think he'd lose his mind and leave? Well, that's the art form, right? But you, can, you can do anything you want. But if you want to keep a guest around who is unstable and, and edgy, then uh, maybe just hold your opinion back for a while. Maybe just sit back for a while. Maybe minimize the interruptions. What's most important to you, Gavin, is that most important that you feel not like a bitch. Right. If you're able to have self-respect, you're not going to worry about feeling like a bitch because you're allowing a guest to talk. But what's most important to you here, your psychological needs or what is good for the show? What's most important to you, your feelings of whether or not you're a bitch or the viewer experience? Yeah, 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 based on what you've seen. That's Now, my opinion I don't think so. of what he talks about, because he's not talking about these subtleties and, and like, yeah, elites also run – uh, the media and and uh, Hollywood. It's mostly, if not, it's vastly Jews that run the media, the entertainment business. Now, whether that's good or bad, I'm not even fucking saying that. I'm just saying this is a fact. Go to IMDb and look up producers of yeah, movies. But Jews don't it's, deny that. I, no, some of them do. Or that's just dumb. Wait, wait, wait. They might not. Den- no, that's why he walked off of Tim Pool. Hold on, because Tim Pool denied that Jews dominate the right. media, and that's just dumb. No, wait. They might not deny it, but they take offense to anyone even bringing it up. That's the fucked up thing. Yes, the dumb ones say, no, we, we are uh, uh, the majority. So, yeah, Anthony Camilla making a lot of great points. Here. Of people that run uh, the entertainment, the banking industry, media. But you can't mention it. There are plenty of yes, people. That's that dumb. That, that, by, by the way, do. pointing it out is anti-Semitic. Right. No, what intelligent Jews do and that's the majority, is say, yes, we dominate the media. We dominate Hollywood. Where are these Jews? Well, I can show you a million articles where where uh, where the headline, I think it was in the fucking Atlantic. Yeah, they bring it and up. It was like, okay. it was you like, can't bring Jews, it up. Jews don't run Hollywood? Give me a break. Or come on. It was an article like that. Very popular about five years ago. But I and, swear and he said, you. I can only find five major players in Hollywood who were non-Jewish. Four yeah. of them wouldn't speak to me if for fear of being ostracized. The other one's getting and his the dick one, sucked in the, in the jacuzzi. No, he goes, and the fifth one turned out to actually be Jewish after all. Oh, <laughs> But those guys admit it. But but uh, the intelligent ones go, yeah, yeah, I know we dominate that. But we're not a monolith planning to ruin anything and destroy white people or something. So it would be like saying, you know, yes, Russians dominate chess, but we don't have this plan to do anything evil. No, that's not me saying that. That's no, no, I, the I get that. Jewish argument. But you cannot possibly tell me that you haven't come across people that 
get offended by you just pointing that out. Yeah, I have no time for that. I don't care. But but it's a thing, and it's a bad thing. They could label you an anti-Semite for yeah. just saying that's a dumb thing, and it's bad it for Jews. Thing. It's bad for Jews to be that intolerant. I don't think it's that. And they're, um, they're, I don't think it's that scarce of a thing that happens that you can agree. Just say it. Like oh, one or two might. No, I'm say not that. saying that. I'm not saying that. I'm saying dumb say deny that they dominate the media in Hollywood. Yeah. Smart go, yes, obviously, but we're not out here to... Right, right, right. Now, my other point is, uh, if, as Kanye was talking about his banking being uh, pulled, his ability to make money, his ability to move money around, and this is a, you know, at one time anyway, a, a billionaire, uh, you, you look at that and go, if one or two Jewish people are upset or offended with Kanye, they can't deny him banking, one or two people. Yeah. It's a concerted effort that need be done by a group of people that are offended by what he's saying. And that's an amazing base of power. To be able to pull his ability to do business, that isn't one or two. Like, oh, they're individuals, just individuals. It's not this big conglomerate or... Yeah, but it's liberal elite whites who happen to be mostly Jewish. If liberal... A Karen is is has the say at Bank of America and yes, Citibank? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Eh. A lot of the top... I think it's Karen Blur. Female. Karen Berger, Karen Schmitz. Sure, sure. Has the say. But if... if if Kanye went out there and said, I'm going Death Con 3 on the Jews tomorrow, right. sorry, on the gays tomorrow, and he talked about gay groomers and gay pedophiles, which he does, but if he made that his main thing, right. you'd see the same kind of cancellation because liberal white elites hate anti-Semitism and they hate uh, homophobia. Yeah, I understand you'd see the same cancellation because he's going after a, a liberal fucking uh, uh, icon, gays or, or whatever, but it always has to filter. How do people stop a citizen from banking? Who has to make – who insanity. has to push the button? Who has to sign off on it? I think you'll notice in that signature yes. who's signing off on these things. And it's a concerted effort. And it doesn't have to be this conspiratorial thing where they meet in a conference room that no one knows about. It's just known. There's a, a brethren. There's a, 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 a cabal. It's, it's Look, when you're outside of polite society, these things happen. I, I've never had a bank account canceled on me. I assume you've never had a bank account canceled on you. But a lot of people in the porn industry have bank accounts frozen or banks have told them we don't want you anymore. Uh, people big in crypto have also experienced this. Once you get outside polite society, then banking, which tends to be historically a very conservative institution, right, may not want you as a customer. So it's, it's not that shocking. It's not something that just happens to those who criticize Jews. I know a lot of people in, in the porn industry, when I was writing on the porn industry, that 10 years, they would complain about, I think, Bank of America and uh, other banks telling them, we don't want your business. Liberal, <laughs> it's liberal white elites who are massively disproportionately Jewish. And I would go further and say, these Jews are not real Jews in the sense that they tend to be secular atheists. Orthodox Jews, Hasidic Jews are my people. They're pro-Trump. They breed like rats, by the way, bad analogy. They breed like rabbits. These secular Jews are just like liberal elites in that they don't really breed. They're not going to be around in a few generations. They're extinguishing themselves. Right. And... They don't read the Torah. They don't go to the temple. They will occasionally go to synagogue to socialize, but they're not real. They're, they call themselves like female rabbis. If you're a female rabbi, you're not Jewish. It's not how it works. It's, it's, like, like, that shit. it's like a female Muslim cleric. Or yeah. their, their mothers will be non-Jewish, but their dad's Jewish. And they're like, I'm a Jew. No, if your mom's not Jewish, you're not Jewish. Karl Marx, George Soros was a second-generation atheist. You can't not believe in God for two generations and still call yourself a Jew. Sorry. So you don't think Soros is a Jew? No. So he's just he's a white an elitist. man. He's a liberal globalist elite, <clears throat> and he wants to destroy the world. And his look, uh, your Jewish status is not affected by whether you believe or don't believe in God. All right. So you can have a liberal religious practice such as female rabbis. You can not believe in God. You can eat, you know, non-kosher food. Right. This doesn't make you 
any less Jewish. Jewish is primarily a tribal identity. It's not primarily a religious thing, right? It's a tribal identity with a religious component. Grandfather may have been Jewish. Or the, the head of the New York Times. Do you think he has any Salzburger. influence? He's not Jewish. Do you think he has any influence in the Jewish uh, – uh, I'm not even going to say community. It's not community. It's not a community. The, the seculars hate the Orthodox. Yeah, in the but you don't think he has influence when he does something or says something or puts down a fucking – He has command. massive influence yeah. on liberal elite America. Who but happens to what? Be disproportionately Jewish. Jewish. You know what though? The, the, um, the, the number of Jews in this country are very small. Two percent. Three percent. So the liberal elites have their – they have their agenda – yeah. But who's who's the, the power broker of that agenda? Who are the ones that are able to do what the liberal elites need be done? Cancel people's bank accounts, blackball them from Hollywood, have the media rip them the fuck apart. Isn't that- I don't know. Have you ever been ostracized? If you've ever been ostracized, you'll notice that it tends to spread. Right? You get ostracized from one group. Other people quickly find out about it. I mean, that's my life experience. That part of the whole thing? Do, do, does any- it, it, it doesn't require someone on top deciding these things. We pick up social cues about who is cool and who's not cool, who it's good to hang out with, who it's not good to hang out with. We read social cues. Fucking liberal Karen or douchebag that you see walking down the street uh, with the blue hair or nose ring, are they the ones that are able to go, yeah, shut his fucking bank account down? Or is it a concerted effort? Again, by the people that actually have the ability to do these things. The people who have these abilities are liberal whites elites. I can't are, believe I'm more, astronomically, more based than Gavin. Astronomically. Based. Okay, let's uh, get back to a little Richard Spencer here. He can. And so he does have talent. You know, I, you know look, I always want to be Talk fair about Nick. People, Try to see them accurately and not just get into e-drama bashing or whatever. But he developed an audience, which is this online youngish audience. And even many of them are even younger than we might imagine. I mean, there, there are I, I, a huge degree, a huge, a huge lot of his audience are teenagers. Andrew Anglin actually said this of, you know, so many of my readers are 16. Um, there was actually one guy. I forgot what, what happened. There was some Nick fanboy that I don't even know. I think, he, I think he was like planning a school shooting or something. I cannot remember exactly what happened, but it, it was very bad. And this this kid was like, like nine in 2016 or so. I mean, it's just, it's crazy. Uh, but anyway, he developed that audience and that's his power. I mean, as I've said before with Stop the Steal, it wasn't just Nick himself. It was the fact that there were many conservative institutions and activists that have money and have an institution, but don't actually have an audience. No one ultimately gives a shit about women for America first or something like that. No one's heard of them. No one cares about them. When you listen to these the administrators talk on television, they're boring as hell. They have no real audience. There's no, there's no compelling factor to any of them. But they are organizations with funding. They they see a benefit to themselves with promoting election misinformation. And- so you noticed that Elon Musk really is unbanning a whole lot of accounts, a lot of people coming back on, on Twitter. Here is uh, Michael Malice. This is the, uh, you, you got me triggered. Now, okay, now I'm going to go full Luke. Elon okay. Musk. Uh, Eliza Blue, if you're out there, I think she's been on the show. Yeah. Uh, this has been her big issue, getting a CP off of Twitter. God bless her. This is something that is uh, unambiguously a problem, something unambiguously horrific and evil, uh, period, end of story. And a lot of times people who were in, the, as, as you said, were in these pic- images or videos would contact Twitter and Twitter shrugged their hands. Elon Musk took over and he's like, all right. This is going to be like priority one. Like this is a complete non-starter. This has got to go. We could worry about racism, homophobia, transphobia, gender pronouns, whatever. This is a problem. Forbes, who is an agent of the devil, wrote a tweet and an article that says Elon Musk has tried to take on 
uh, Twitter's child abuse nightmare, but according to experts, has only made it worse. And they tweeted it nine times. I looked up how often Forbes had mentioned Twitter and children in the past. They've literally never even used those two words together previously. So now that Elon is trying to do something about it, Forbes has an issue with it because they don't have an issue with it. They have an issue with Elon Musk. So this speaks. So remember Richard Spencer about a month ago said that he didn't think that Elon Musk would, would make any significant changes with Twitter. Twitter would just go on as, as it has. Musk would make zero difference. Richard Spencer couldn't be more wrong. We've got thousands of unbanned accounts coming back online. Uh, Elon Musk is cutting way back on the disgusting uh, child sexualization that used to populate Twitter. Elon Musk seems to be doing a lot of really good things on Twitter. He's made a significant difference. And protesting the counting of the votes, et cetera. And so they see Nick as powerful in that way. And I have no doubt that the conservative movement is well aware of Nick and that they know that he, for better and for worse, is kind of part of their general structure. Because these things act like, um, as I've said before, they act like multi-marketing, multi-level marketing platforms. So in other words, you have a downstream channel. So like if you're selling doTERRA uh, essential oil products, doTERRA is ultimately the manufacturer. And let's say that you live in Utah and you're a avid Mormon. Well, you're going to have a downstream audience of people who will maybe meet at your house on Sunday afternoon or something, and you can tell them about doTERRA. But the money flows to you, but it ultimately flows up to doTERRA. But you create a downstream channel. There could also be some hippie commune in Portland that is a downstream channel of doTERRA. So they have nothing in common with the uh, Mormons channel. But so Rich is trying to make the, the case here that uh, the GOP has made millions of dollars off of Nick Fuentes and his movement. I just don't see that. How exactly is the GOP profited from Nick Fuentes? Like Nick Fuentes is taking people, attention, and money that would have uh, previously you know, gone to GOP operations. Who's the Charlie Cook, all right? Nick Fuentes is taking people away from the Charlie Cook movement I don't see exactly how the GOP is you know, profiting off of Nick Fuentes. Again, the money flows. The spice must flow, as they said in David Lynch's Dune. Like it, the money must flow upwards in this multi-level marketing. And uh, Ricardo is back. He says, I don't see how Nick Fuentes is really threatening to normies. He's baby face. Well, you can have a baby face and be threatening, but I don't see how Nick Fuentes is threatening. I don't see how Kanye West is threatening. I don't think Nick Fuentes or Kanye West or Milo Yiannopoulos pose any danger to... Uh, safety of Jews, the prosperity of Jews, the happiness of Jews, the power of Jews, the influence of Jews in America. All right. These guys are not a threat. Ricardo says, Judaism is a religion where we worship your genes. You don't need to believe in God, just be hereditary. It's not primarily a religion. It's a tribe or tribes operate this way. Right? Tribes don't uh, tend to demand that to be a member of your tribe, you have to believe in X, Y, Z. That's not the nature of tribal identity. Religions demand that you believe this or that to be a member of the religion. But Judaism is primarily a tribal identity with a religious component that a minority of Jews participate in. Fashion. And you can be a part of that if you're ultimately pushing in the direction of the corporation. And so, like Nick, yes, he engages in Holocaust denial. Yes, he thinks that women should be barefoot in the kitchen. 
Yes, he thinks that we should have a Catholic dictatorship. Yes, he thinks that abortionists should be put on trial, whatever he thinks. And that's not something that any kind of mainstream Republican would ever endorse. Uh, but they ultimately understood him as a powerful downstream channel. So, you know, Nick got a lot of super chats, made thousands, thousands of dollars. But whatever thousands... Looking on uh, Twitter right now, Darren Grimes says, for the first time ever, Christians are a minority in Britain. So 46% of Britons identify as Christian versus 59% in 2011. And uh, Sophie Ullman Golan says, why is this sad news? Yeah. How dare you want to be a majority in, in your own country, right? If you think that being a minority is tough, right, then why would you want to be a minority? I, I think most people understand that being a minority is not as fun as being a part of a majority. But yeah, wanting to, to be the majority in your own country seems pretty healthy to me. He made personally... I would say ultimately thousands and in fact, maybe even millions went into the GOP coffers. He's not like taking money away from the GOP. How, how exactly is Nick Fuentes putting thousands, millions of dollars into GOP coffers? I don't see that. He's in fact creating a kind of downstream channel that leads to Trump and the GOP. And in that sense, he is, you know, a necessary evil or a, uh, you know, a, 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 I don't know the right word, a, an embarrassment, but a profitable embarrassment. They recognize what he's doing and the fact that he's successful at it. And so I think they're very well aware of him. I don't know. If, I doubt actually Trump was knowledgeable of him personally, but there are certainly people there that understand what he's doing. So where was I in this? Um, so, I mean, this brings up interesting questions about like what the ultimate motivation is for yayism, et cetera. But, I, okay, this is what I, okay, this is the point I was making, and then I'll move on. The point I was making was that regardless of what Nick's own kind of, uh, you know, sexuality is, however you want to describe it, don't want to think about it too much. The fact is, he, he had to kind of say that nonsense, like having sex with women is gay, or it's all gay. He had to do that to appeal to them, to develop that downstream, highly profitable network. And so it's a kind of like, it's a double-edged sword. Like, I don't, Nick wouldn't be a public figure without his ability to get 10,000 views almost immediately by just turning on his computer and talking. At the same time, to develop that downstream channel, you ultimately have to kind of delegitimize yourself. You're going to ultimately have to not just be a Catholic dictator. No, you don't have to delegitimize yourself. You have to give people what they want. You have to provide assurance for people. You have to be a source of emotional comfort to people. You have to be a source of emotional strength to people. You need to be able to articulate things that people feel but are unable to articulate. No, you don't have to give up yourself. Leadership advocate, but ultimately be this rather creepy and ultimately ridiculous insult. And I think the most powerful attack on him, again, the most powerful attack on the alt-right is... Uh, Ricardo says, what are the explanations for why all the distant right types are ad hominem attacking Kanye West and friends? Well, there are a lot of reasons to not like Kanye West. Right? One, one doesn't have to have any particular view on Kanye West to, um, to think, oh, don't, don't, uh, don't really like, like this guy. So, I mean, Kanye West is a bizarre person. 
So uh, Kanye West wanted to tour Australia. No way. The Australian Football League does not uh, want anything to do with Kanye West. This was ridicule and not, these guys are Darth Vader. The most powerful attack on Nick is, this is just some kid who can't get laid. And Ricardo says, LOL, Luke, I know why you don't like him. We'll talk about the rest of the closet anti-Semites or supposed anti-Semites. That's because Kanye West is not an appealing personality. He's unstable. He's frequently unhinged, off the hook, uh, antisocial. Like, who would want to hitch their bandwagon to Kanye West? I mean, would you want a Kanye West type checking the engines before the, the plane takes off? Would you want a, a Kanye West type as a neighbor? And I think they're going to pursue that. But anyway, what do you guys think about this? I have a couple other kind of angles on this. Backers. Um, I really think that there was something, uh, an intent to smear him, and that Milo is uh, the point man there. It seems pretty obvious. Yes. And, you know, conspiracies work best when they're already, like, there's already motivation in play. You know, like, to create to, to create something whole cloth. You know, to, to say, like, I, I'm, just, I'm just coming up with something totally ridiculous here. So uh, Ricardo says, I'd rather live next to Kanye West than Joseph Carter. I would rather live next to Joseph Carter than Kanye West. But one thing, uh, unexpected loud noise, I experience it as an assault. It really seems to diminish my, my well-being. Also, Kanye West is likely to bring over a lot of people who have a much higher propensity for crime than Joseph Carter's friends. So the, you know, the unexpected loud noise, the... The crowd that would accompany a Kanye West, uh, Kanye West's own volatile, unhinged behavior. Yeah, I would not want Kanye as as a neighbor. Um, you know, we're gonna, uh, you know, we're we're gonna put a dead hooker in Trump's, you know, Chevrolet uh, trunk or something like that. Well, you you do you're, you're just inventing some scandal like totally out of whole cloth, and you you might get caught doing that. It might not work. It might blow up in your face. It might be misunderstood. It's, it's it, you know, yes, that, that that would be kind of dealing a death blow to Trump, but there's just so much kind of risk people might not even buy it you know i probably wouldn't it's like what that just seems you know it doesn't it doesn't make sense this totally makes sense because you're basically like channeling existing dynamics that are already in play milo is a sociopathic con artist and he will but he's one of a particular kind he will go he he'll he'll kind of sense where there is some kind of energy and he'll right-wing edgy energy that is scandalous and outrageous and he'll just go there like a moth to a flame so if you look at his history, it's Gamergate. You know, I'm going to be the man about Gamergate. It's he. One of the scandals was when he created this foundation for like whites. It was like white students' foundation or something like that. The privilege grant. Yeah, the privilege grants or whatever they were called. That was a total scam. Uh, the the degree to which any like white heterosexual male received funding from that is highly dubious. At the very least, it was just an obvious thing. And so he's kind of going to that thing. He went to the alt right. Um, I think a lot of these people see now that. Um, it's it's the Christian nationalism and so on. So he at first he presented himself as I'm gay. Uh, examples of Kanye West's unhinged behavior. So I just went to Wikipedia. Uh, he said that uh, George Bush doesn't care about uh, black people. Uh, Kanye said he'd go down as this the voice of this generation. Uh, when he interrupted uh, Taylor Swift, like took the microphone away from her. He's he's storming out of uh, auditoriums after not winning a music award. I felt like I was definitely robbed. I was the best new artist this year in 2004. 
if uh, yeah, if Kanye doesn't win, then essentially the the awards are fixed. Uh, November seventh, two thousand six, Kanye West apologizes for his public outbursts. Uh, 2006, when his Touch the Sky failed to win Best Video at MTV Europe Music Awards, Kanye West went onto the stage as the award was being presented to someone else and argued that he should have won the award instead. 2007, he said his race has something to do with his being overlooked for opening the 2007 MTV Awards in favor of Britney Spears. Lost all five awards he was not nominated for and uh, then said he would never return to MTV because he didn't win any awards. Now, when Taylor Swift was accepting her award for Best Female Video, Kanye West goes on stage, grabs the microphone from her, proclaims that Beyonce should have won the award. He was subsequently removed from the remainder of the show for his actions. So, yeah, a lot of unhinged behavior. Uh, 2013. He said uh, why Barack Obama had problems pushing his policies in Washington. Black people don't have the same level of connections as Jewish people. We ain't Jewish. We don't get family that got money like that. Well, maybe if if it's true that black people don't have the same level of connections as Jewish people, then maybe black people need to work on developing connections. So October 7, Kanye West suggested a post on Instagram that rapper Puff Daddy is daddy is controlled by Jews. And therefore, I can't be attacked by the left. And so I'm going to be your champion. I'm going to do all the Trumpism, the anti-immigration stuff, blah, blah, blah. Uh, then he kind of realized that that was over. That kind of ran its course. And so it's now Christian nationalism. So now I'm an ex-gay. I'm creating a foundation to pray the gay away for gays. Um, and I'm a Catholic. I'm doing all this stuff. All of this, you know, if you see these things, there are these Telegram posts that get, that get promoted that are just, they're, they're authentic posts from my love, but they're just too outrageous to really be taken seriously, you know. Trump, there was one that I, was, I saw making the rounds. Trump, uh, he's, uh, he's a tool of the Jews, and we actually need a candidate who is based on the Bible or something like this. And so it's an anti-Semitic, but then, you know, Christian fundamentalist or whatever the hell it is. So he just, he just always is, he's attracted to that most, you know, that like shiny object, like hot flame. And he goes there and... Sounds like Richard Spencer to me. I mean, Richard Spencer does it at a higher IQ level. So... I've been looking at the news and I noticed that 100% of the China experts who I see quoted in the news say there's absolutely no chance that these COVID protests will pose a threat to the reign of the Chinese Communist Party. And it reminds me of the 1980s when it seemed like none of the experts on the Soviet Union thought that the Soviet Union was in danger of collapse. And then suddenly the Soviet Union collapsed overnight, even though none of the experts of which I'm aware predicted it. Now we hear all the China experts say, absolutely no chance that China falls apart. Well, I think there's a very good chance that China could fall apart tomorrow. But I don't think the Chinese Communist Party is going to be ruling over the nation state that we currently know as China in, in 10 years. So I would put the, the over-under for the survival of China as, as its current political state with the Chinese Communist Party running away. So I put the over-under at, say, eight years. So, yeah, I think it's entirely possible that this may be the beginning of the end of the Chinese Communist Party. I, I do expect China to fall apart any day now. And 
probably wondering, 40, what does, what does Peter Zion have to say about to this? From Colorado. I hope everyone had a great Thanksgiving. I hope it kicked Thanks, off a fantastic Peter. holiday season for everyone. Holiday, Christmas, Hanukkah, ones. whatever you call it, whatever makes you happy, just that's somebody else's cultural war issue. Uh, today, we're going to talk about something significantly more significant. Sure. And that is the end of China, which is moving out of the realm of the theoretical and the historic into the here and now. What's going on right now is there are protests involving thousands of people against the government that are at least nominally about COVID restrictions. Now, ostensibly, there have been two triggers for these sort of mass semi-coordinated um, protests. The first was a fire that occurred in the western city of Urumqi that killed people who were under COVID quarantine. <clears throat> According to Chinese laws, when it comes to quarantine, people can't move and it doesn't matter if your building's on fire. And, and uh, the chat says, you aren't actually betting with money. That's right. I don't bet with my own money because I'm a gambling addict, but I'm betting my I'm, I'm betting my reputation. I'm betting my ability to discern what's going on in the, in the world around me. You wouldn't come here to check out this show if you didn't think that I occasionally at least have some insights that are worth thinking about. Even if you just come here, you reject everything I say, but you just find it sharpens your own thinking to go up against someone who you see is, is wrong all the time. But probably think that I have some occasional insight into the world. And yeah, I do think that China's falling apart in front of our eyes. And it also meant that the fire service couldn't get into the building to do battle with the fire. Anyway, it's policy in China to weld people into their homes and their buildings when they're under quarantine. So toss in a fire and shrug. Second, the World Cup. China is an information state. And part of that means that the state lies to you about anything it finds inconvenient. Like the fact that most of the world has found a way to move on from COVID. Well, the World Cup's live broadcast showed tens of thousands of cheering and booing fans without masks. And well, folks got cheesed off. So we now have protests in every major city. The overall number is at least in the high tens of thousands of people participating. And it's difficult to know more detail than that because it's an information state. China is a bit of a black box for policy because China is a one-man state. But that one-man state is becoming overwhelmed with non-compliance. And the government just doesn't have the bandwidth to come up with policies that most people would consider normal. Uh, but I think the best word we can use here is creative. One person only has so much bandwidth. And so we're seeing institutional freezing and breakdown because this, this isn't the United States where a bunch of suburban housewives descend a maskless on a food court and start yelling, let's go, Brandon, or a few yahoos glue themselves to a museum wall. We can obviously get through crap like that, but it isn't clear. That and uh, Harold makes a great point. I come here for the curated content played at 2x speed, not the commentary. <laughs> That's a good point. Like often, you know, I may think that my commentary is just so valuable that I have some important insights that, uh, you know, maybe I'm a compelling personality. Uh, maybe I'm, I'm funny or entertaining or I have depth or wisdom. But uh, no, I, I curate a ton of content. So it is entirely possible that you don't give a fig for anything I say. You just want me to play curated content. <laughs> I absolutely believe you. I absolutely believe you that there's a substantial part of my audience that does not give a fig for what I have to say. They come for the curated content. China can. It has to do with a different structure. The United States has different levels of authority, local, state, national, legislative, judicial, executive, neighborhood, business, academic, and so on, independently garnered, constitutionally garnered, community created, overlapping, sometimes clashing, often messy. But interests generate power, generates authority, generates durability, not in China. China is a one-man state because it is nearly the only way that China can exist. This isn't Sweden or Denmark or France or Argentina or Korea, where the bulk of economic and political power exists in one city, so it's easy to come to a degree of consensus. China's population is spread out on a so I rarely play at 2x. So this is at 1.5x. So let me know if you think this is 
too far, so I normally play at about 1.5x. A huge swath of territory comprising everything from near Arctic to fully tropical, and regional disparities abound as you would expect. But this also is in the United States, where our definition of inequality means that the average person in Maryland is about twice as wealthy as an average person in West Virginia. China's regional Harold <laughs> Williams says, I give you a ton of credit for radicalizing E. Michael Jones. <laughs> yeah, I turned E. Michael Jones onto the Jewish question with your porn reporting. In a butterfly effect kind of way, it radicalized me at Hale 40. <laughs> then E. Michael James radicalized Kanye West. <laughs> I'm responsible for, for Black Hitler. Mighty Puck says, you have good takes, but your China takes is more like a hutch. Yeah, it's a hutch. <laughs> Luke is the 8x12 card of acceptable right-wing Overton window. Yeah, I, I pull my punches. I try to say in the, the good graces of wider society, I try to comport with you know what will work with the rest of my life. I don't try to fit the rest of my life around my live streaming. I try to fit my live streaming around the rest of my life. Uh, most of my friends are at synagogue and uh, I, I'm not going to burn up my friends and cause myself unnecessary trouble. Surus. Disparities are a 10 to 1 span. Nor is this a country like Germany or the US or Japan or India or Indonesia where geography was kind enough to enable physical integration via either waterways or easily maintained road and rail networks. And so where you have integration, you have commonality. You've never had that in China. The North China Plain is its own region. The Yangtze Basin is an industrial powerhouse with few connections to the north. And the cities of the southern coast have all... Well, I think the Han Chinese as an ethnic group, don't they compose about 92% of China? So, gosh, that sounds like some social cohesion and connection. Looked abroad for their welfare, their safety, and even their food. The only way to make China work is to force it to. And these many disconnects show up in Chinese institutions. The Chinese constitution. Now, I think he may be right. It's a little bit like Iraq. We, we removed the strongman Saddam Hussein dictator. And right now, Iraq seems to be functioning, but I don't think any of us would be surprised if Iraq descended into some massive civil war that cost millions of lives. So, too, with China. If we have the end of the Chinese Communist Party, it wouldn't be shocking to me if we reverted to Chinese civil war that caused the loss of tens of millions of lives. Would you be surprised if that happens? Like some places can only be governed by a strongman dictatorship. Maybe Iraq, maybe China. Constitution is a joke. It isn't even referenced by Chinese courts. There, there's no rule of law. There is law. Maybe Russia. Maybe Russia only works if it has a strongman dictator at the top. Also, situations. Dwight Eisenhower said that uh, the United States could only survive a nuclear war if it had a dictatorship. The United States could not survive a nuclear war as a democracy. So in different situations, any nation state is going to need a dictatorship to survive. Normal times, some peoples are better cut out for participatory democracy than other peoples. Law by rule, and that rule is whatever Xi, the chairman, says. And he is a horrible delegator, even within the Chinese Communist Party. The COVID restrictions in play right Was this guy, Peter Zion, formerly in the State Department, or is he just a guru? He is a guru. He started off working for George Friedman, so doing geostrategic analysis. So he started getting quoted in the media around 2004. Now, I have some disagreements with Peter Zion. A few days ago, he called Putin's war on Ukraine a fascist, imperialist, and genocidal. Right? I think... That is false. It's, it's not imperialist. Putin invaded with only 175,000 troops. You cannot take over Ukraine with 175,000 troops. It's not uh, fascist. 
right? Fascism was a interwar movement as a reaction to Soviet communism. So the only two fascist regimes we've ever seen are Italy and possibly Nazi Germany. Uh, fascism isn't racist, so you can make a good argument that uh, Nazism wasn't really fascist. And also, Peter Zion talked about how the January 6th mob, you know, beat police officers to death. And that's not true. That didn't happen. People died on January 6th, and Ashley Babbitt was shot by an officer, and other people died of strokes, heart attacks, things like that. But the January 6th mob didn't murder anyone. So Peter Zion is incredibly compelling. He's entertaining. He, he's passionate, but there's a price that you pay frequently when you're compelling, entertaining, and passionate is that you're wrong about some things. You get so carried away with your passion and you know, putting on a compelling product and you get an overestimation of your own abilities to simplify what's going on in the world that you start rough riding, rough riding, roughshod over facts and reality. And uh, Peter Zion is vulnerable to doing that. Right now are part of that milieu. They all draw their authority and power, not so much from the Communist Party or the Chinese state, but from Xi personally. That's how you get neighborhood HOAs enforcing COVID lockdowns so brutal that fire escapes are welded shut to ensure enforcement, ensuring that people die in easily preventable tragedies like what happened in Arumji. Or city authorities thinking that they're doing the will of Xi and by and removing street signs. Okay, Rodney Martin. Rodney, what's going on, man? Hey, Luke. How's my sound? You sound great. Good to talk to you. Great. How, how's the world down under? It's wonderful. I'm having a great time. Well, you know, you shouldn't have headed off to uh, Australia so soon. You might have gotten a Thanksgiving dinner invitation to Mar-a-Lago with uh, Nick Fuentes and Kanye and Milo and uh, and such. You know, did you get an invitation? I did not. Did, how about you? I wouldn't have attended with those that clan uh, if uh, if I was asked. And you know, what I'm most disappointed in is. Trump, every president has to have somebody, people around him, and the president has to have the discipline to listen to them to say, hey, guess who came to dinner, Mr. President? Uh, you might want to take Kanye in because the world's kind of given, to some degree, not more recently, a pass. They've been chalking it up to mental illness. But uh, as soon as he let uh, Nick Fuentes in, I think that was – point set match for for trump he crossed the line into the fringe i think he's going to have a uh will uh, uh have a uh, a hard time uh uh in uh um, i think he made it more i think the odds are greater now that he'll have a harder contested primary now than he would have had he shown some discipline and not kept uh those type of people uh away now, my impression on this this triumvirate of Kanye and and uh, uh, Nick Fuentes, which kind of interesting given Nick Fuentes' position on people of Kanye's uh, heritage, and Milo. Milo looks like a crackhead that just went down to Salvation Army and got a suit. And uh, Fuentes' uh, 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 Bitcoin has probably plundered somewhat, so they're now mooching off of off of Kanye. And as soon as Kanye is 5150 by somebody and his wife finishes terminating his parental rights and whatever happens, they'll, you know, they'll disappear pretty quick. Um, I don't see this as anything more than mooching 
uh, for, uh, uh, you know, personal gain. This is a marriage of convenience, i.e. Fuentes for Fuentes, Milo for Milo, and Kanye, I don't think he really understands what the hell is happening. Yeah, I can't imagine this happening to any other major political leader. I mean, there's no way that the British prime minister would, uh, you know, be having dinner with millennial woes. Uh, there's no way that, uh, you know, Justin Trudeau would be having dinner with uh, Kevin Michael Grace. There's no way that uh, the, the French president would be you know, meeting with some you know, right-wing uh, commentator. So, yeah, Trump Trump doesn't doesn't have the same boundaries as other leaders. Well, I mean, let's look at this. Even if you agree with these people, there has to be some sort of understanding. Look, you know, do you want to win or do you want to show off? And, uh, you know, I mean, even if, even if, I mean, you know, if you want to go about talking about all this stuff, J John F. Kennedy had a fetish for Hitler. He talked about Hitler having the things of greatness. He had Hannah, uh, Hannah Reich at the White House. He, she was actually at the White House. He invited her into the Oval Office and asked her what he was like after he gave her, her and her comrades in a gliding. She was a uh, famous, she did gliding after, after the war. So, I mean, this is nothing new, but um, it's, uh, um, you know, it's not going to do Trump any, any, any better. Um, so uh, let's just, does my uh, reservation only get dial up? Interesting. Anyway, um, I, I, I don't understand. I mean, it, it doesn't do any good. And, and, and you know, Trump, do, you know, he had this problem in his presidency. You know, he tried to run the Oval Office on the cheap by bringing in his 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 liberal daughter, best friend of Chelsea Clinton, and his his you know marvel you know marvelous uh, son-in-law, who he treated better than his own sons. Who actually, you know, it 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 cost him. He got rid of people like Bannon, who were the true believers, in favor of that, and then the people that you know the adults in the room, like John Kelly, who escorted some of the nut jobs out. Uh, of the uh, of the Oval Office, he wouldn't listen to either. So this does not bode well for you know a second run. And you can look, you know, there's only been one president in history that has made a second run at the White House and succeeded, and that was Grover Cleveland. And that was against a guy that he actually beat in the popular vote when he lost to them in the Electoral College. So what, what do you think about uh, Ron DeSantis? I'm not a big fan of him either, but I'm, I've kind of grown sour on the American political system as it is. I mean, I've said for years it's specifically designed to prevent change, and that's uh, that's what we're that's what we're seeing. Uh, it's specifically designed to prevent change. I mean, I, I I I'm not one you know I'm not an election denier, but I also understand that the Democrats that you know, in certain states that held the levers of power abused the process to the point that it could, it could have affected the outcome. Did it? I don't know. Do Democrats have a history throughout history of cheating? We do know that Lyndon Johnson uh, cheated to become a Senator the first time he had uh, votes counted in cemeteries in Texas and Richard J. Daley did the same in Chicago in 1960, which tipped it to Richard Nixon. Richard Nixon was urged to do to push for a recount, he said no because if it fails, I'll be a sore loser. I won't be able to make a comeback. History proved him correct. Of course, he didn't do well. He was probably the last true outsider besides Trump to actually win and 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 do anything. But you know, um, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't think that it's going to be interesting to see what twenty twenty four 
brings, it's going to be interesting to see what the next two years brings. I'm more interested to see if, if Kevin McCarthy actually becomes a Speaker of the House. I don't think he will. I think he'll have to step aside for somebody that satisfies those five Republican holdouts, hoping that they do hold out and uh, not let him become Speaker. So maybe Steve Scalise? That would be an awesome choice. Uh, and that's somebody McCarthy likes. That's somebody that McCarthy's people likes. I mean, that would be a great uh, that would be a great pick. Yeah. And uh, what do you think of the midterm results? Um, interesting. Uh, you know, there's two lines of thought. Uh, one can argue that uh, now they're blaming Trump, saying that he had weak candidates. But his candidates, if they were so weak, they sure overperformed what they should have done if they were so bad. Uh, I, I think that, for instance, in Arizona, Blake Masters would have won had, uh, had uh, limp-wristed, spineless McConnell not pulled the funds out you know, in the last month. That's when they were desperately needed, and that's when Blake Masters actually closed, uh, you know, did his best in closing. Uh, I don't think that would have been the time to cut and run. Um, but, um, uh, be that as it may, you can say that it was weak candidates. And then the other side of the argument is you had a situation where McConnell was afraid of the same dynamic that Kevin McCarthy is facing right now, which is a good thing. So, I mean, McConnell would rather be minority leader than not be voted majority leader and have the GOP in the majority in the Senate. The only saving grace of the midterms is the big issue items of the of the Biden uh, agenda should be emphasis on should be blocked by a GOP uh, House. Now, the emphasis is on should be because the Republicans are famous, famous for rolling over uh, and uh, losing their spine. And uh, what do you think about Karen Bass as the new mayor of Los Angeles? Well, I mean, uh, you know, an elect, uh, a, a, a person that is elected reflects the electorate, and she is the lowest of the low IQ. So obviously, you know, she reflects the L.A. Uh, uh, electorate. I, you know, we're going to we'll, we'll just have to wait and see. I have no uh, obviously I was a Caruso fan. I'm not an L.A. resident, but I, I you know, I was a Caruso fan. I was hoping he could do something to at least, you know, move forward more aggressively and clean up the city and make it, you know, get rid of some of the craziness. But uh, I think L.A. is going to descend. I think she's going to be the David Dinkins of L.A. I think L.A. is going to become what New York was under David Dinkins. And uh, so be it. Sometimes sometimes an addict has to crash and burn really hard before they wake up. And sometimes they never wake up. I mean, L.A. just may be something on a dime, on a downward spiral. And if uh, Joe Biden doesn't run in 2024, who do you think will be the Democratic nominee? I'm thinking maybe Gavin Newsom. No, I don't think it will be him. Um, I, I don't think it will be him. I think it will be a free for all in the Democratic primary. And I think it will it'll be someone that, you know, uh, I, I just don't think it'll be Gavin Newsom. Gavin Newsom is not university, uh, universally liked uh, across the whole spectrum of the party. Uh, Ricardo asks if SBF is going to go to jail. Nope. All he has to do is stay in the Bahamas. Hmm. And uh, however, he might slip and fall. He might slip and fall in his bathtub. A lot of these crypto kings 
have so you know age 30 have had heart attacks or mysteriously passed away. he might slip in his bathtub but i don't think he's ever going to go to uh, jail i think he knows too much for if i was him i would be locked in my apartment i would be have a food taster if i could still afford one i'd have a loaded pistol next to me to guard myself because all the dirty money that he spread around the democrats um is making him probably uh, more hot than somebody that, uh, you know, that turned on the mob in the 1950s. So what do you think about this this term anti-Semite or anti-Semitism when we don't have the converse, you know, anti-Gentile or anti-Gentilism? I think it's a meaningless term because it's been so, it's like racist. It's been so overused and, dare I say, abused to where people just don't even listen to it anymore. And it, in so doing, it lets real anti-Semites and real racists off the hook, which is probably uh, the, you know, the intent. Uh, it's interesting that people that scream racist the lo- loudest, you know, tend to be people that associate with uh, the Hebrew Israelites, Louis Farrakhan, etc. And uh, if you listen to what comes the vile, you know, the bile that they spew seems to be pretty racist. And they're usually the ones that are screaming the racist. So usually people that scream racist, it's a deflection, but uh, 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 it is what it is. Uh, the term anti-Semitism uh, 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 is a uh, uh, another term that just doesn't seem to be uh, uh, worth anything anymore because, uh, you know, criticism of the IDF, you know, mowing down a bunch of Palestinian civilians is is anti-Semitism. Criticism is of Israeli trade policy can be anti-Semitism. Any, you know, and that's just absolutely incorrect. We know what anti-Semitism is. It's someone that says, you know, I hate Jews because Jews are Jews and they are whatever they are. Now, uh, China is having a lot of uh, COVID crackdowns and then protests about COVID crackdowns. Uh, a few years ago, everyone was so sure that China was was on a trajectory to be the most powerful nation on earth. <clears throat> now China seems to be just having a lot of problems. Uh, how solid do you think uh, China's Communist Party is? W- would you be shocked if it uh, was essentially you know, overthrown or torn up by a civil war, say, in the next decade? No, that's not going to happen. We, I heard this hype when I saw the guy standing in front of the tank in Tiananmen Square, and we still don't know who the guy standing in front of the tank in Tiananmen Square was because he's disappeared uh, into a gulag somewhere. Um, we hear this, you know, we got to be very careful not to be influenced by Western media. Um, and uh, uh, it, it's it's totally different uh, over there. Uh, I... I <laughs> The difference between, I always said, the difference between the Chinese uh, and, and the Soviets in 1991 is the Chinese will fire on their own people, whereas uh, uh, the uh, uh, Soviets, the Red Army, when push came to shove in the squares of Moscow in 1991, refused. They just, they just gave up. They weren't going to do that. So uh, the Chinese are quite different. The Chinese Communist Party uh, is quite different. The, uh, the People's Liberation Army is quite different, uh, and uh, the, so is their state security apparatus. Uh, so uh, any, any idea that there's going to be some sort of color revolution uh, in China, uh, we're, we've gotten too drunk on our successes in overturning a couple of elections in Ukraine. 
that uh, uh, which has resulted in not very good results for Ukraine, by the way. Um, but um, uh, time is not on protesters' side when you're facing a behemoth like China. Um, it's almost, and I also find it hypocritical when you have people fanning the protests of, uh, you know, those the Chinese protesters are heroes, but certain protesters in the United States are staging an insurrection. What's the difference? Just wondering. Uh, how how cognitively with it do you think Joe Biden is? Do you, do you think that uh, he's the most powerful man in the world, or is there someone pulling the strings behind Joe Biden? Uh, I think Ron Klain and Jill Biden are the ones that are pulling pulling the strings. We're talking about a guy that shakes hands with with thin air. So think about it for a minute. You see a guy that openly, and the fact that the media doesn't say anything, but yet I remember in the last year of the Trump administration when Trump held his hand under his glass to take a drink to steady it so it wouldn't spill on his probably $2,000 suit. Don't blame him. Uh, they said, oh, he had cognitive functions, uh, problems. Um, but yet there's nothing to see here, nothing to see here. A guy that shakes hands with, no, uh, with, with thin air, I mean, there's a bad situation. Um, it'd be interesting, uh, we just seen in Arizona where the uh, uh, winning candidate for governor didn't debate uh, by, you know, I'm wondering, would they actually release? It's just to say, for instance, Trump isn't the, isn't the uh, nominee for president in 2024, and Biden does decide to go for it, or the people around him decide to push that poor old doddering fool out there again, would they really want him debating a uh, a DeSantis? I mean, think about it. Uh, let alone a Trump. Uh, they, I mean, if I was Biden's people and I we were going to push the old guy out there again so we can keep our cushy jobs and keep ramming stuff up the hind ends of America and taxing them to death and whatever. I, I would rather them run against him run against Trump than against DeSantis. Uh, but uh, we'll have to see. No, I don't believe he's all cognitively there. Uh, when I worked in Washington in the, in the early 90s, late 80s, early 90s, I mean, he was known back then. There was like a few senators that the female staffers were told to stay away from. One of them was Bob Packwood of Oregon. The other one was Joe Biden of Delaware. I wonder why we haven't heard those stories. I mean, you think more women might have uh, come come out with their stories? Well, they have. I mean, you know, this Tara Reid, hers is compelling, and the fact that even her best friend, who was a Biden supporter, who said, "Yes, I believe her. I believe it happened, but I'm voting for Joe Biden," which goes to show you just how low IQ the Democrat voter uh, has become in the year uh, 2022. Hmm. I mean, think about it. You had her best friend, uh, you know, and then there was the, the audio clip of her mother calling into Larry King, and you know. So, I mean, there was plenty of reports at the time. You had the situation of the of uh, the Latina candidates running for lieutenant governor in Nevada, Lucy Flores. Uh, he went up and sniffed her hair, and that there's video of that. She complained about it. And what did the Democrats do? They promptly told her she couldn't run for office again. <laughs> I mean, think. About I wonder what kind of cocktail Joe Biden was on for the debates with, with Trump. I'd really like to know what the drugs were. Um, who knows? I mean, could he? I mean, who says he had to have been on anything? Oh, I, he was considerably more alert than he normally appears. Well, sometimes he is. 
And I notice, if you notice, he's uh, his his more lucid statements are the ones in the morning, which is consistent with someone that has dementia. When was the last time he had a really a nighttime nighttime press you know press you know announce anything to the country at night? Uh, that's usually when someone with dementia, uh, you know, uh, has problems. But his early morning stuff is usually pretty good, and that's when a person that has, you know, I'm not saying Alzheimer's, but a person that has the beginning trends of dementia uh, has problems. And I'm not making that. I'm not making that analysis. My daughter, who's a nurse, says that, you know, she's just made that observation based on what she has seen with, you know, patients as has the early early onset. Maybe he just has. I'm not a doctor. I haven't observed him, but he sure does. He sure does fit the bill of someone that has early onset dementia or, or is cognitively impaired. And uh, who do you think is going to win the world cup? I don't know. Don't care. (laughs) Okay. Uh, What do you think about what's going on in Russia versus Ukraine? Winter. Russia's gearing up. Uh, uh, Russia's knocking out their in- Ukrainian infrastructure. Here, 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 on the long, you were right. He went in with only what I think you said, one hundred seventy-five thousand troops. I thought he went in with one hundred twenty-five thousand. So I'll stand corrected if it's a one seventy-five. Uh, you know, I think Putin's original objective was to do what he did with Crimea, was to just march in and either take everything east of uh, of the river. Of the uh, I can't think of the name of it right now. But uh, anyway, uh, or Eastern Ukraine, sever the country. I'd ever thought he wanted to take uh, uh, Kiev as a whole. I always thought that was a fainting maneuver to divide their forces. But be that as it, as it may, uh, he soon learned that you know, since 2014, the West has been arming that country to a T and training them. And uh, I think this is why he probably felt he had no choice but to go in and do something because when you're sending in that type of weaponry, think about it. What's the difference between 2012, 2013 Ukraine and Crimea? Why did they fight so hard for Crimea as opposed to that? Well, they had how many years of being armed with Western uh, 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 Western arms, Western training? So he had to just knock that threat out. Now, trying to do it with 125 or 150, 175,000 troops against uh, – uh, and I looked at the troop levels of the Ukrainian army – Going into January at the beginning of the war, they had an army under arms of about 700,000 troops. You could call up, and then Zelensky mobilized his, his population, which Putin didn't do until most recently. He mobilized 300,000. It all goes down to this. War is about – I think his initial planning was flawed. Um, I think he should have just done the all-out Soviet-type invasion of Eastern Europe. I think he should have just bombed the I'm like, if you pay Ukraine, for it? including the major city, including the cities along the the Polish uh, Polish border, which are ser- serving as the transit routes for Western weapons. I think he should have just demolished those cities and just gone all in with three hundred to four hundred thousand troops and rolled over Ukraine and taken it, just taken it. Uh, he decided not to because, you know, he called this a special military operation and he was trying, I think it always says, you know, there was a reason why the Germans had the battle plans in France in 1940 that they did. The Germans wanted to take it relatively whole intact and not have to clean up a big mess and capture, you know, a lot of things intact. Like they grabled in Czechoslovakia, they captured the Skoda works uh, intact. Very similar. Well, he doesn't have that now. He has all out war. So, 
now he's kind of doing what the Soviets did in 1941-42. The winter is a Russian ally. It's not a Ukrainian ally. He's using rockets and missiles and artillery to knock out their power grid. It's very cold in Ukraine right now. If you look at satellite pictures of the of electricity, of lights, it's it's like North Korea now. And uh, what he's doing is he's he's amping up those three hundred thousand troops that he's called up, and uh, he's pulling up more tanks from the far east. And I think probably come uh, early next year, Ukraine's in for a hell of a hurting. So I think we're going to see a different type of war. And what are the chances that this war goes nuclear? It doesn't. It doesn't unless Ukraine tries to do another shenanigan like they did bombing Poland, which made them, I think, look horrible. I don't understand where the outrage here. They bomb Poland, try to blame uh, uh, the Russians. And immediately the U.S. even says that that wasn't the Russians because they're watching. Uh, we have better satellites, of course. And, uh, you know, I think there's also getting to be a, there's definitely a weariness uh, in Europe. Uh, the Germans have backed off quite a bit. They've not sent their, uh, uh, you know, their, their leopard tanks that they've been promising they're going to send. There's a weariness because uh, Zelensky has been, he's just a pathological liar, number one. And that little bombing escapade, I think, was meant to draw NATO into the war. And I think that really shook, uh, you know, I think it shook the polls somewhat, but definitely shook some of the other Western. Plus, there's not unanimity in terms of, of NATO uh, in this thing to begin with. Orban's not necessarily supportive uh, of it. The Czechs aren't, the Slovaks aren't, a lot of them aren't. Hmm. Okay. Um, I mean, who wants, it's, it's wintertime. It's wintertime. They need that Russian gas. And I mean, look at the, look at the utility bills in Europe uh, right now. It, it, it's, it's incredible. Right. So this is going to end with Russia getting most of what they want, essentially, and Ukraine signing off on that? I think in some form. I think Russia will get the areas that they have annexed and declared part uh, of, of Russia. I think Ukra uh, uh, Ukraine will have to declare themselves a neutral state, which there's no harm, no foul there. I mean, uh, matter of fact, if I remember correctly, I look back, Russia didn't even, care, didn't even care if they became part of the EU. It was the NATO bug that was the issue. And uh, so I think, you know, where I think this ends up is Russia keeps the territory. There's no way Putin can give that territory back. There's too much blood and uh, blood's been spilled for it. Plus, those people there, they're Russians. They want to be Russians. And uh, then uh, I, I think there's going to be kind of a split. Let the rest of Ukraine be in the EU, but they're, they're neutral. They're not part of NATO. And everybody goes in peace and serves the Lord. Okay. Okay, great. Uh, Rodney, right. any, any final words for today before I move on? Hey, how long are you going to stay down under, Luke? Uh, coming back to L.A. at the end of January. Oh, well, hey, look, somebody in the chat asked me if I had, like, dial-up on my reservation. I, I don't know because I'm too busy having that person's uh, mom in my teepee right now warming me up, so I'll sign off on that. <laughs> okay, thanks, Rodney. <laughs> <laughs> okay, take care, man. Let's get back to emerging in them because they assume that's what G wants in order to smother citizen awareness. If we see meaningful resistance to any Chinese policy, China goes one of two directions. Option one, you get a rolling series of government breakdowns as Xi's authority is challenged, and there's no one to step in to replace it because he has purged the system so completely. COVID is only one Chinese policy that feels a bit 
out of place? What about the social monitoring system that has created an information state tighter than Cold War East Germany? What about lending controls that have contributed to real estate distortions two orders of magnitude larger than America's subprime? What about laws against the VPMs that allow you to share your kids' photos without them being entered into a national database? What about the deliberate cultural destruction policies for the Uyghurs and Tibetans? A crack in Xi's personal authority isn't simply a crack in the facade, but a fissure to the core which would unleash a torrent of dissent that would wash away everything? We're already seeing the protests spread to non-related issues. University students are getting in on it. Opinions are being aired on dictatorship versus democracy, economic growth, housing, how good or how bad a job G personally is doing. In a country where any sort of common coordinated public outcry is viewed, viewed as treason, we are already hip deep. Or there's always option B. She puts a stop to it. She is a child of the Cultural Revolution, a 10-year-long internal repression so intense it killed at least 40 million people and gutted what then passed for the Chinese economy. Neither of these are great options, but both of them are emblematic of the long run of Chinese history. Either China becomes too tightly wound and controlled and it descends into an orgy of self-destruction, or central authority breaks and China spins apart in an orgy of self-destruction. Okay, so self, self-destruction, self-immolation, maybe civil war possibly ahead for China. He designs for you. Let's get a little more from Richard Spence. He monetizes it. And there's no doubt, I mean, I don't know what to say. This might be Milo's masterpiece. You know, Ye certainly isn't broke. I don't think so. Um, you know, I could imagine him taking a few million off Ye. <laughs> and, could happen. And kind yeah. of this reminds me of what we've been talking about with religion. Like you, you talked about how the... Um, Okay, this is uh, Richard talking about Bidson and Andrew about this in six months, but nevertheless, you need money now. Keep in mind as well, I just there's some recent polls that were released. I mean, Trump is still in the lead in Republican primaries. So he is a real threat. He's not just done or over. He might be in jail at some point, but he might still win the Republican primary. He's under 50% in the Republican primary, but uh, often. But he's still leading by 10 or 20 points. So... The, he's a real threat. Now, what is the kind of like, what, what is the motivation of Nick beyond just, this is an amazing kind of hilarious, you know, kind of thing. I, I think there is a, and I saw this, I also saw this on Twitter last night. There was Andrew Anglin called in to one of these um, Nick aligned streamers. It's actually this guy who is perhaps one of the most toxic people around Beardson, Beardley or whatever, just a horrible character. And basically Andrew Anglin is totally behind this. He's totally behind yay of them. And he was describing it as we want to get people super Christian and super radical, and this is how we do it. It's so it's just crazy enough to work. We just need to push them into this. And um, I, I kind of understand what he's doing. I, I do feel like there's some whiffs of Yang Gang 2019. And if you guys remember this, um, Andrew Yang, at least at, in 2019, I think was a fairly interesting guy. I, I think he's pretty contemptible at this point. You know, precisely because he hasn't reinvented himself and, and he hasn't actually even stuck to his guns. He's now just promoting like reasonable centrist third positionism, um, which is just stupid um and it's you know he has this new party that's staffed by republicans i don't know never trumpers i mean it's just anyway but he was really compelling in 2019 and it was like the the ubi the we're gonna all be automated out, out of our jobs right now it's factory workers soon it'll be truck drivers and it will be lawyers and then it will be everyone um be doctors at some point we're all just gonna get eaten up by robots and so we need to have this dividend for everyone that comes from this automation economy and so everyone will get a thousand a month and that will allow you to kind of invent the next thing it was this both kind of socialism on one level, but then also one that kind of buys into myths of Silicon Valley hook, line, and Hey, Richard, uh, speaking out here against anti-Semitism. We're talking about the same Warren Baylog? <laughs> uh, yeah, I know. Yeah, he, he, knows, he knows who's, he knows who's Yeah, I mean, don't you think that's a pretty, I don't know, I, that's, that's, I think that's pretty surprising. I mean, I, I know these people have, a, that, you know, I, I know what their position on, on that issue is, but anyway, it's, it's kind of... Wait. 
Why? Why is that surprising? Because really? Warren Baylog's like the king of the JQ and Hitler and all that stuff. Yeah, Why? Yeah, but, like, go ahead, Andrew. Well, yeah, but but to make that your number to say that that is more important, you're placing your like an, an enemy or an opponent and centering that as like being against these people is. So the allegation is Warren Baylog said that uh, being against Jews is more important than being pro-white. The central issue. Is that I, I, positive. I, I, yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, Sen did a whole Sen did a whole rant about that, saying, "Yeah, anti-Semitism is the positive identity." <laughs> He's saying that's all that matters. And I mean, literally, that is absurd. Even, like, literally, not even the Nazis said that. <laughs> no, no. They didn't even say anything close to that. I mean, l- l- anyway. So, yeah, but, yeah, but nothing. Nothing. I, mean, I even. I might. Well, I, I, I hesitate to say this. I, I, I think I would say this. I think civilization is of equal importance to race. I would actually say that because it's not just the. Civilization comes in large part from race and geography, right? Genetics and geography produce civilization. White race. Like, it's not just about, like, maintaining people with white skin, blue eyes or whatever. And that's great. But that's just kind of, like, the point of this is that we, we are part of a civilization that, that actually is kind of beyond ourselves. And that we want to advance the civilization. I think those are of equal importance. You kind of can't have one without the other. The white race without a civilization is just biology. Um, and, you know, whether uh, the civilization can... Ex- yeah, but it's civilizations created by genetics in a particular place, meaning genetics and geography. Exists without the white race. I think, I think capitalism can certainly exist without the white race. I don't think a civilization, as we understand it, um, can. Um, so I, I would stress that. But, like, the JQ, I mean, look, it's important. And obviously, like, I, you know, what I'm dedicating most of my time now is, is analyzing the, the symbolism and cultural impact and, and theology, you could say, so this is what he spent most of his time on, but his analysis is, is just very juvenile. Of Judaism and Christianity. Um, but like just hating Jews or whatever, like hating Israel, it's just, it's actually pretty low on the list, to be frank. Well, he, he said the world, we've never gotten to see what the world could be like without Jews, because we've always had this disease scourge. So we need to see what the world, we need to give the world a chance to see what we're capable of without Jews. Well, first off, that, that's genocidal and insane. And secondly, I, I would even push back. I mean, like, why is that? Why is that? This, this disease, as he, he calls it. Why is that? You know, like, the Christian, sent, Christian anti-Semitism <clears throat> has been around since the Gospel of John. And it is, you know, I, not the original Christians, but, but certainly, like, as the second or third generation of, um, uh, of Christian fathers, like, they, yes, they, they kind of evolved into what could be called anti-Semitic. Um, Paul was a, you know... Different groups have different interests, right? Right. Different groups inevitably have clashes. Right? Human desires are infinite. Human resources available to us are limited. So you can call these conflicts of interest, you can call them anti-Semitism or racism or bigotry, but what they are fundamentally at core is a clash of group interests. Pastor of the Gentiles, but the idea that he's anti-Semitic is, you know, a little bit of it there, but it's absurd. Well, so you know we've, been the, doing, we've been doing this Christian anti-Semitism for 2,000 years. They've been hammering away at Jews. Well, you know, the intellectual... Have, we, have they gotten very far with them? It's not like there's just been Christian anti-Semitism for 2,000 years. Christianity contains both critical and positive views of Jews. It's not like uh, Christianity is monolithically anti-Jewish or monolithically pro-Jewish. Right, you have a conflict of interest between two religious groups, you know, claiming divine sanction for their way of life, and there's plenty of pro-Jewish stuff in Christianity and plenty of Jewish critical material. Well, you know, they, they, they seem to still be around. Kind of anti, the other kind of anti-Semitism scares Jews way more. I don't know if it was you or somebody else who was saying.
I mean, within Judaism, you'll find you know negative sentiments about uh, Christians, some negative sentiments about Arabs and Cossacks. There's some quote where the guy said there was like Italian anti-Semitism, which is like you should be Christians, and then there was German anti-Semitism, which was way more, which was way scarier, which was like you're a biological, um, uh, biological. Um, yeah, you're a race like, as opposed to we should convert you. Biological you just haven't recognized. Yeah, you haven't recognized. You you haven't recognized jesus yet and so we, we can convert you i think that yeah i mean again what 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 brahman is pursuing is it's not I, I don't doubt that jews are a race to some extent like you can you can definitely you know i do think that they jews are a tribe now do do all members of tribe have you know identical genetic lineage no people sometimes get adopted into a tribe and you can call that adoption process a conversion but uh, Jews are fundamentally a tribe with religious aspects to that tribal identity that some people participate in and some Jews don't. They are more or less. <laughs> the, the... Does uh, Judaism have anything positive to say about Christians? Yes, you'll find plenty of Orthodox rabbis say that uh, Jews should be thanking Christians for keeping the issue of abortion front and center. I think it was Maimonides who said Christians should be praised for taking the, the Jewish scriptures to the whole world. So, yeah, there are plenty of positive references to Christians throughout the Jewish tradition, as well as plenty of critical references. People of the Bible. Um, but I think calling them this, like, the idea that Jews are a pure race, I think is absolutely... Uh, Rodney says Islam is positive towards Christ and Mary. Islam has sections of its tradition that are positive towards Christ and Mary and Christianity. They also have parts of their tradition that are highly hostile. Right? It would be naive to think that uh, Islam and, and Judaism would be holy you know, one way or another with regard to another religion. Obviously, they're going to be positive and critical reactions in its text. Absolutely wrong. And goes against these stories told in the Bible. And, you know, they are a, where they get their power is their religion. They're not, like, I... I Jews don't get their power from religion. It's primarily a tribal identity. Right? Jews get their influence and power from their disproportionately high IQ, and high IQ people tend to create more effective institutions and tend to punch above their weight. Anglicans, all right, very high IQ group, every bit as high IQ as Jews, they tend to punch above their weight in cultural and economic influence. I, I, I guess it's weird to say this, like, to think of all Jews as just these, like, evil, like, just bound for evil or something. You know, look, do, do some of these stereotypes that we have about Jews, do they kind of fit? Are they tight-fisted or pushy, you know, prone to hysteria? Okay, fair, fair enough. You know, are they great athletes? No. Fair enough. All of that's fair enough. But to then conclude that they're, like, their DNA makes them evil or something, just, guys, this is just... I would say evil, but it definitely, makes them, it definitely makes them liars. I've never met another Jew other than me because of the audience. Okay, so this idea that like all Jews are liars or all Christians are liars or all Muslims are liars or all Blacks are liars is absurd. I mean, you'll find plenty of lying and plenty of truth-telling in every race and every religion. Right? No group has a monopoly on truth. No group has a monopoly on lying. That would tell you the truth about, uh, about political stuff. Like, they all lie. I've met straight... plenty. Of, oh, come on. They're, they're genetically programmed to lie. Yeah, I feel like, come on. I see no, my grandparents do it, and I felt like they didn't even know when they were. I felt like it was it was weird. Where is their Where is their real power? Their real power is their religion. Uh, most Jews have almost nothing to do with their religion, so that's obviously not the source of their power. Right? Jews have a tribal identity, 
but most Jews in America marry out. So tribal identity is fairly weak among most American Jews. So to the extent that Jews have disproportionate power at the influence that comes from having above average IQs, and as a secondary matter, they tend to live in urban centers where it's much easier to be influential than if you live in the country. It's what we don't really have. You know, like that's the reason why they're significant. That's the reason why Christian anti-Semitism is going to be hammering away at the Pharisees for 2000 years and obviously get nowhere with them. How many times have they been oppressed and expelled? How many times have there been pogroms that have, you know, materialized spasmodically in which a bunch of Jewish shopkeepers got the shit kicked out of them? How many times have we seen that throughout history? And yet it's really unsuccessful, don't you think? Really amazing. We have a religion of billions of people. The most popular religion. Maybe it's not so unsuccessful. Maybe it's a you know, understandable reaction in certain circumstances. Uh, Christianity has had more than its share of success. Right? Approximately 2 billion people in the world identify as Christian. Religion on earth. It's apparently anti-Semitic. And yet, here we are. I mean, Kanye isn't wrong when he talks about there are a lot of Jews in Hollywood. A lot of Jews in the media. A lot of Jews on Wall Street. They have a state that is a Jewish state. Obviously, we've tried the Christian anti-Semitism thing. And it clearly does not work. Well, what and about like the other... The question of why it doesn't work. Now, I, look, I'm not going to sign off on biological extermination. That's a non-starter. No, not extermination. Right. Just like... No, no. Because I don't think they're a race. I do not think they gain their power from being a race. Remember, Ashkenaz... There are people... And yeah, you can call them a race. doesn't fit 100%, but... Uh... It doesn't fit for you know calling the English a race or Australians a race 100% either. It's an approximation of a tribal identity. The Jews are 50% and higher European. You find plenty of Ashkenazi Jews with blonde hair and blue eyes. They're like us. They're European. And it's not wrong to say that they're like an ethnicity. of. They have a component of European ancestry. They also have a component of Middle Eastern ancestry. Right. Jews tend to be more emotional, tend to wear their feelings on their sleeve more than Europeans. When you go to the Middle East, you see other Middle Eastern peoples have similar, you know, more volatile or expressive emotional reactions. Of Europe, of Europe. And like, where do they develop their power? Their, their power is cultural. It's religious. It's psychological. That's the greatest power in the universe. And yet that's exactly what the Christian anti-Semites adore and don't want to contradict. I mean, it's just... When you take a step backward, it's it's actually fairly obvious. Right, a little Richard Spencer commentary there on Christianity, and talks about how much he's he's been studying this issue with, with Mark Brahman. I think he could go a lot deeper. Judaism as important, and but um, being critical, getting at was it might have been the liberal, secular Jewish communities of America and other, you know, other European countries. Yes. I mean, it's, it's very clear that, you know, I, I forgot who said this. It might have been Meyer Kahan. Is DNA more important than God? More important for what? All right. Uh, your DNA can predispose you to all sorts of illnesses. Uh, your DNA sets the, sets the contours for what you're capable of. Uh, belief in God can be a tremendous source of comfort and power and inspiration and connection to other people. So which is more powerful? It depends for, for what? Or something. It just, um, uh, America is the mausoleum of the Jewish race. Or, it, it, there's, some, there's some comments like this. And 
what this person was getting at was the tendency for intermarriage, the tendency for like ultimate cultural uh, assimilation and um, the tendency. Most Jews in America are marrying non-Jews. As we see here of like clearly. And then they don't raise, most Jews who marry non-Jews do not raise their children as Jews. Um, being critical of Zionism at the end of the day. Kind of still maintain. Yeah, so American Jews are less and less identified with the Jewish state of Israel. Maintaining a certain Jewish identity and still actually seeing Judaism as important. And, but, you know, becoming more secular and ultimately seeing kind of Israel as a, a bit of an embarrassment to Jewish identity. I mean, some people. It's a bit of an embarrassment if you've got a left wing identity, not because you're then a bad person, but because you put your, your left wing values, your cosmopolitan values, your liberal values ahead of your tribal values, right? Does it make you a bad person to put your political ideology ahead of your tribal identity? So that's why left wing Jews, by and large, do not particularly care for an ethnic state such as Israel. Well, I've gone, gone so far as to say that the, the American or di diasporic uh, Jewish, you know, identity and experience and values are more kind of authentically Jewish since... Uh... Yeah. There's no true Jew, right? Jews, you know, have a different expression in Sydney, Australia, than they do in Jerusalem, than they do in Tel Aviv, than they do in Damascus, than they do in London or New York or Los Angeles. Right? Jews express themselves differently in different situations, just as Christians do. Right? Christians widely vary all over the world or even within the same city. You have Korean Christian churches and African Christian churches and Swedish Christian churches. Very different experiences, very different people, very different life results in these different churches. I mean, obviously, they've been a diaspora. I mean, except for small numbers, for most, you know, so, so much of recent history. Um, which, so I don't know. I don't even really know, which I think that argument is somewhat compelling. Yeah. Richard, you I mean, said this is how they do it. Remember, when Jews pursued hardcore Jewish nationalism and separatism, they got crushed. Wait, they started the modern Jewish state. And it is now the most powerful military in the Middle East. So they, they did okay. Other times when they went into hardcore nationalism and separatism, they got they got crushed by the Romans. Same time, Romans also got crushed. That marked the end of the Roman Empire expanding and the beginning of the Roman Empire declining because they had to you know, suffer such losses in their battles with Jews two thousand years ago. And when you know, like a much more um, applicable or, or successful evolutionary strategy has been the strategy that they pursue in a way in the United States. And assimilation is also part of it. Remember, like... Sometimes nationalism and putting out boundaries against the outside world is the best strategy. It depends on the situation. It's not like one strategy is always superior to another. The first, like, canonization of the Bible itself is a Greek project. <laughs> That's absurd. I mean, Richard talks about how he's spending so much time learning about Judaism and Christianity and studying with Mark Brahman. He doesn't know the first thing. It wasn't Greeks who canonized the Hebrew Bible, right? It, it was Jews. It was Jewish rabbis taking place 2,000 years ago. He's getting confused with a translation of the Hebrew Bible into Greek, the, the Septuagint, which took place about uh, 2,300 years ago. There were a, a ton of Jewish Greeks and a ton of Gentile Greeks who were interested in monotheism. This led to the, the translation of the Pentateuch, really canonization of the Pentateuch, the translation of the Pentateuch into, into the Septuagint was not the canonization of the Pentateuch or the Hebrew Bible.
two very different things. Right? If you translate my autobiography right into Greek, you're not you're not canonizing it. You're translating it. Two very different activities in Egypt in two fifty. So like that that's a more natural Jewish you know project than the outright we are you know that kind of blood and soil nationalism. No, no. Uh, highly assimilated Jews translating their texts into Gentile languages is not a more authentic representation of Jews or Judaism than some kind of hardcore separatism. They're both strategies employed by Jews at different times in different situations. And one strategy is more adaptive in some circumstances and another strategy is more adaptive in other circumstances. Like this is our state. We're going to do it. Fuck you, Roman Empire, etc. That has That has at least... Yeah, going to war with the Roman Empire was really stupid. It was not an effective Jewish strategy. In history, in the ancient world, led to pain and suffering. Yes, it was it was a bad strategy. All right, let's get uh, a bit more here. The past. There's no, there's no doubt about it. Abrahamic paradigm. So they see is kind of part of the future, and even Muslims, even someone who's in, at least ostensibly antithetical to them, but also is. Muslims are within the Abrahamic paradigm. So it's a little bit, there's a kind of another. The Abrahamic paradigm effectively only means something to scholars of religion and people with esoteric interests. Right? Even if Christianity, Judaism, and Islam supposedly all share the Abrahamic paradigm, in the real world, that doesn't mean much. In the real world, sometimes Jews, Christians, and Muslims have things in common as opposed to the secular atheist onslaught. But uh, plenty of times they have clashes of, of interests. There are layer to it. You know, both Muslims and Christians have engaged in anti-Semitic violence in the past. There's no, there's no doubt about it. But to see either of those groups as deeply anti-Judaism or anti-Jewish in that sense is, is... It depends on the time and place. In some contexts, it would make sense if those groups are fighting for supremacy or fighting for survival. It would make sense for them to have a lot of negative feelings, including fear and hatred and resentment towards our groups. Sometimes it makes sense for an individual to have a lot of fear and hatred towards our groups. Usually in, in the first world today, you are not well served going around with an intense hatred for our groups. On the other hand, you're not served walking around with zero antipathy for our groups. And if you just have a mild to moderate antipathy for our groups, that will give you a stronger in-group identity and a stronger sense of purpose and identity, right? But if your antipathy to our groups becomes too extreme, you become less effective in the world and less happy. It's also wrong. There, there's a kind of layer to it. I mean, this is the Caduceian idea. Um, I, I so it keeps, keeps uh, throwing around this term Caduceian, and I, I don't think he really knows, knows what he's, he's talking about. So Caduceus, right? This is... This is a Greek, a Greek thing here. I, he throws it around so much. It's, it's a favorite by Mark Brahman. So it's a, a Greek symbol, right? Uh, it's a staff carried by Hermes in Greek mythology. And it can be, Caduceus can refer to peace-loving or it can refer to rhetorical power. So it's a symbolic object and and. <laughs> Mark Brahma, Richard Spencer can't stop talking about Caduceus, but I'm not sure their use of the terminology adds anything to what they're saying. 
why does it not add anything? Because I'm not sure they really understand what they're talking about. Definitely think that's true. But maybe maybe the kind of like Western or diasporic Jew is kind of the real Jew in a way. The there's one no who lives Jew. here, who values Judaism, but it's... There's no real Jew, right? There's no one true expression of, of Judaism or Christianity or Islam or you know, being Aryan, right? There's one expression in Sweden. There's a different expression in South Africa. There's a different expression in Australia, right? In different times and places, people will express their identities differently. It's not like the true Christian, the true Jew, the, the true Muslim. Kind of left it behind. I think that might be in some ways truer to themselves. Yeah. The other interesting thing is not to... <laughs> so he's going to opine. He's going to opine on what is true Judaism. I mean, it's ludicrous. It's absolutely ridiculous. Called for bringing Ukraine John into NATO. Mishammer. Second, bringing Ukraine into the European Union. And three, promoting a color revolution, an orange revolution in Ukraine that would turn Ukraine into a pro-Western liberal democracy. So it was this three-pronged strategy that the Russians, unsurprisingly, viewed as an existential threat. And what's happened since April 2008, when the United States forced NATO to say that Ukraine would become part of NATO, is that this situation has gotten worse and worse. Uh, and the crisis first broke out on February 22nd, 2014. And then, of course, we had a war starting on February 24th of 2022. So let's just talk about what we've learned for a moment since February the 24th, 2022. Has anything about the progress of that war from the original multi-pronged invasion of Ukraine by the Russians right through to their gradual retreat to smaller regions within Ukraine, has any part of that surprised you? I think that I uh, have been surprised by the fact that uh, the Russians performed poorly. Uh, you want to remember that the Russians went to war in Georgia uh, in August of 2008. And the Russian army, although it won that war rather quickly, performed very poorly. And the Russians then set out to reform their military so that the next time they fought, they'd perform much better. Uh, and I think almost everybody thought the Russian army, especially, uh, would do well uh, in Ukraine. And it has not done well. It has struggled. There's no question about that. So I've been surprised by that. Um, and what, what should we learn from that, sort of philosophically, if anything? I mean, is there, is there any wider lesson from the underperformance of the Russians, do you think, in terms of how we should treat the next crisis or, or what, what we should have known all along? Well, I think what it shows is you never know how a military will perform until you get into the fight. Uh, if you think of uh, the situation regarding Taiwan, China has not fought a war since 1979. That was a long time ago. And the question of how the Chinese military would perform in a war over Taiwan uh, is really unclear in the extreme because they haven't fought a war in a long time. And as we know from this Ukrainian case and the Russian military performance, uh, sometimes you think the military is going to perform very well and it doesn't. Uh, and vice versa, by the way. So it just shows you how, how much uncertainty there is when it comes to going to war. In many ways, anytime you go to war, you're rolling the dice. And the Russians, I think, understood they were rolling the dice. I think all the evidence is running up to when the war started that Putin did not want to invade Ukraine. He was working mildly to try to avoid that outcome because I think he understood that it would be very messy. Uh, and of course, it has proved to be very messy. I want to come on to those, the idea of what the Russian end goals are, but let me put a couple of arguments to you which people have said um, sort of in opposition to your more realist worldview and see how, what you make of them. Um, one of them is that your whole premise is that the Russians were acting rationally, realistically. They were defending their sphere of influence. It was intolerable for them to have NATO coming so close to their borders, and this was a sort of act of self-defense in some way. But if they've shown to be so much weaker than certainly we and perhaps even they realized, were they acting realistically? 
is there actually an argument that they've now learned, and the world has shown them, the Russian side, that they had an unrealistic estimation of their own power, of their own sphere of influence, and that reality has now adjusted? Well, what I think you have to understand is that when countries think they're facing an existential threat uh, and, and they become desperate, uh, they're willing to roll the dice. They're willing to pursue incredibly risky strategies. And the best example of this is when Japan attacked the United States at Pearl Harbor uh, on December 7th, 1941. It's very important to understand the Japanese understood full well. Okay, the same thing would appear to people that you marginalize and cancel, right? You cancel someone right, you say no one should have dinner with them, then they may be willing to roll the dice and engage in risky antisocial behavior that they wouldn't otherwise. So it's kind of a dangerous thing to marginalize, cancel people. You don't know how they're going to react. They were attacking Godzilla. The United States had 10 times the gross national product that Japan had. It had the capability to build a much more formidable military. And the Japanese had no illusions that they would win the war. They thought there was a sliver of a chance they would win, but they would most likely lose. But nevertheless, they attacked. And the reason they attacked is they were desperate. Uh, the United States was economically strangling Japan at the time, and it was threatening to knock Japan out of the ranks of the great powers. And the Japanese felt they just had to do something. So you want to understand that when great powers are desperate, they are willing to take extreme measures. This, by the way, is one of the reasons we should worry greatly about the Russians using nuclear weapons if the Russians are losing the war in Ukraine. If they're losing the war in Ukraine to NATO and to its Ukrainian allies, they will certainly be in a desperate situation. And when states, great powers especially, are in desperate straits, they tend to use extreme measures to try to rescue the situation. So I think what happened on February 24th is that Putin concluded that he really had no choice if he was going to prevent the West from turning Ukraine into a Western bulwark on Russia's borders than to attack. And that he did. I want to come on to this nuclear question as well. Let me throw one other um, argument at you, which is that the relative strength and the relative performances of the Ukrainian side and the Russian side, of course, is partly explained by resourcing and military training and backing. But is there not also a component which is tends to be absent from the realist worldview, which is of kind of moral righteousness or sense of idealism that is more present on the Ukrainian side because they feel their homeland has been invaded and because they are so committed to it, which is absent, or at least they're a lot less on, within the Russian military who are evidently less committed to it. And that partly explains the Ukrainian success so far at repelling the Russian incursion. Do, do you think what we've seen here in a way is the opposite of a realist outcome? What we've seen is the little guy, the plucky little guy, because he is, Ukraine is so idealistic and so determined to defend themselves, outperforming against the odds. Well, I think the key word here is nationalism, right? There's no doubt that when the Russians invaded Ukraine, uh, that nationalism came racing to the fore and that Ukrainian nationalism is a force multiplier in this case. Uh, and there's also no doubt that nationalism is not part of the realist theory of international politics that I have, but nationalism is consistent with realism. So nationalism and realism fit together rather neatly. But the point you want to remember is that nationalism is also at play on the Russian side. And the more time goes by and the more the Russians feel that the West has its gun sights on Russia and is trying to not only defeat Russia, but knock Russia out of the ranks of the great powers, the more Russian nationalism will kick in. You want to be very careful not to judge the outcome of this war at this particular juncture. This war has got a long time to go, and it's going to play itself out in ways that are hard to predict. But I think there is a good chance that in the end, the Russians will prevail. I'm not saying that will happen, but you don't want to say at this point in time, Ukraine has won, Russia has lost. That remains to be seen. Just watching the events that are happening now in Ukraine, it's quite clear that the Russians are destroying the infrastructure in Ukraine. This is going to have huge consequences. Furthermore, the Russians are mobilizing more and more troops, and they have three times as many people, and they have much greater wealth than Ukraine does. Of course, you might counter that the West is backing Ukraine to the hilt and therefore compensating for those disadvantages that Ukraine has in terms of wealth 
and in terms of manpower. And there is an element of truth in that. But let's see how long the West remains deeply committed to Ukraine. So all I'm saying is let's not judge too soon how this one is going to end. You mentioned a moment ago the nuclear threat. What is, in your view, the correct way to treat that threat? What is the kind of realist answer to a country such as Russia that has nuclear power? Because if they could always brandish it and to threaten them or come up to them in any way is just to to risk some kind of nuclear conflict, then they can do whatever they like. Um, at, At what point do we have to stand up to people even if they do have nuclear weapons? Well, the question is, are you willing to be incinerated uh, to stand up to the Russians over Ukraine and push them to the brink? That's the question you have to ask yourself. Uh, It was a question that John F. Kennedy and his lieutenants had to ask himself during the Cuban Missile Crisis. Uh, For me and most of my realist friends, uh, uh, we fully appreciate that you have to be extremely careful when you're dealing with a rival great power that is armed to the teeth with nuclear weapons that are aimed at you. And you cannot back that great power into a corner. You cannot put it in a situation where it's desperate. You cannot threaten its survival because in those circumstances, there is a reasonable chance they will use nuclear weapons. And if they use nuclear weapons, you understand there'll be no more London. Uh, There'll be no more Europe if we get into a general thermonuclear war. And my principal goal is to avoid that. And what I find quite remarkable at this point in time is how few people seem to understand that danger. There is all sorts of talk in the West about defeating Russia inside Ukraine, wrecking its economy, causing regime change, and maybe even breaking up Russia the way the Soviet Union was broken up. This is a country that has thousands of nuclear weapons. If its survival is threatened, it's likely to use them. So we have this perverse paradox here that most people don't seem to realize, which is that the more successful NATO and Ukraine are against Russia, the more likely it is that the Russians will use nuclear weapons. In circumstances like that, I would go to great lengths to try and work out some sort of arrangement to put an end to this war as quickly as possible. I think what JFK did during the Cuban Missile Crisis was exactly the right thing. Kennedy understood full well that the last thing we needed was a general thermonuclear war between the United States and the Soviet Union. Where's JFK today? I can't find him. And I find instead all sorts of people in the West, in the public, talking about public intellectuals, commentators, journalists, and so forth and so on, and even foreign policymakers talking in rather cavalier ways about defeating the Russians. I think this is foolish. So you talked about you and your realist friends there. What is the line for you? Then? Clearly, you don't think that the eastern parts or even perhaps the whole of Ukraine is of core strategic interest to the United States, or maybe not even to Western Europe. What is of core strategic interest? At what point do you think we would have to resist a Russian aggression? Would that be the Baltic states, for example? And you may well say there's no evidence that Putin has the Baltic states in mind, but let's play the theoretical game. Were he to invade one of those countries, do you think at that point, would you support proper full to the hilt defense? Well, the Baltic states are in NATO. Poland and Romania are in NATO. They have an Article 5 guarantee. And if the Russians were to attack those countries, we would have to come to the defense of those countries. There's no question about that. And you would support that? I would support that. Up to and including nuclear war? Well, I'm not talking about using nuclear weapons to defend those countries, right? What you would use are conventional forces. And if you were losing, the basic strategy or the basic doctrine is that you would countenance using nuclear weapons. What I would do in the event is hard to say. But the key point here is defending the Baltic states, defending Poland, defending Romania against a Russian invasion, which is not going to happen, by the way. This is a figment of the West's imagination, right? The Russians can't even win in Ukraine, much less countenance attacking and conquering all those other countries. But let's hypothetically talk about what would happen if Russia attacked those countries. The United States would come to their defense. That's a very different issue than talking about defeating the Russians in a particular country, wrecking their economy, causing regime change, and maybe even breaking Russia up. There is a fine line out there that you don't want to cross. Some people refer to that as a red line. You just want to be very, very careful uh, when you're dealing with a country that has nuclear weapons. That's not to say you don't want to defend yourself if that country attacks you or attacks an important ally. But there are limits to how far you can go in terms of threatening that nuclear-armed adversary. That's my point. 
on the specifics of Ukraine, then, what should we have done, do you think? I mean, if we, if we consign to the history books all the events that led us up to February the 24th, 2022, at the point of the invasion, whatever the rights and wrongs of what had happened prior to that, what do you think a wise response by the West would have been? Well, first of all, in April 2008, when NATO said Ukraine would become part of NATO, uh, and the Russians made it clear that that was an existential threat and that was unacceptable to them. We should have backed off right then. We should have done nothing more. Then the crisis broke out on February 22nd, 2014. We should have recognized the severity of the situation and we should have backed off and worked with the Russians to create some sort of uh, modus vivendi where uh, uh, the Russians felt that they weren't threatened by NATO in Ukraine and that Ukraine could remain a neutral state. But instead what we did was we doubled down, okay? Then over the course of 2021, right, uh, the situation deteriorated, right? And on December 17th, 2021, the Russians sent a letter to NATO and to President Biden demanding that they get in writing that Ukraine would not become part of NATO. What we should have done then is backed off and tried to work out some sort of uh, modus vivendi where the Russians were satisfied with the situation in Ukraine, right? And the threat of war was taken off the table. Instead, we told the Russians, nothing is going to change. We are going to bring Ukraine into NATO. And we were working very hard to do that, despite the conventional wisdom in the West, which says we were not. We were working to bring Ukraine into NATO. But so what options are available in this post-conflict period or mid-conflict period? What are the realistic options now? There are no realistic options. We're screwed. I mean, what does that mean practically, though, we're screwed? It means you believe the conflict is now destined to escalate or just destined to grind on? Well, both. It's destined to grind on. Uh, and both sides will continue to escalate. They have been escalating. They have been escalating. Uh, and where it all leads is very hard to say. Th there's no deal on the table that can be worked out here. There's all this talk about the need for diplomacy. And uh, 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 I, I think diplomacy is a very important element of foreign policy. And many American policymakers seem to have forgotten that. And many people in the West now equate, now equate diplomacy with appeasement, which is remarkably foolish. So I'm in favor of diplomacy in principle. But the question you have to ask yourself in this particular case is, if you do diplomacy, can you work out a deal? In my opinion, there's no deal to be worked out. And both sides are going to fight this one out. Why? If, if John Mearsheimer is, by some miracle, appointed Secretary of State and you are in charge of negotiating a peace settlement, why can there not be some deal? I mean, the, the Russians are clearly suffering. They're losing a lot of um, soldiers. It's costing them dearly. They probably would like there to be some settlement that didn't look too humiliating. Is there not still something along the lines of, I don't know, neutral zones or administered regions, some guarantee not to join NATO by Ukraine, even if the, the Zelensky government would definitely not endorse that at the moment? Is there not still, in theory, a peace deal to be done? Not really. Uh, I mean, uh, I mean, there are two big issues here. One is neutral Ukraine, uh, and then the other issue is the territorial one. Uh, the Russians have now annexed four oblasts in Ukraine. Uh, this is a big chunk of Ukrainian territory. The Russians now believe that that territory belongs to them. Do you think the Russians are going to be willing to abandon that territory uh, in addition to Crimea? I don't think that's happening. I think the Russians have no intention of abandoning that territory, certainly not all of it. The Ukrainians, for their part, insist on getting that territory back. And the Americans would not be willing to concede that territory to the Russians because it would appear to be a defeat for the West. The United States and its allies are in this one to win. Right? We are deeply committed. For us to back off and give the Russians any major concessions is just unacceptable at this point. That's the territorial issue. Then there's the question of whether or not Ukraine is neutral. The Russians insist that Ukraine has to be neutral. The Ukrainians are now saying we're willing to be neutral, but we need a guarantee for our security from someone. Well, the only someone that can guarantee Ukrainian security is really NATO and specifically the United States. Well, if the United States... China? No, that's not in the cards. The Chinese are not going to guarantee uh, Ukraine's uh, security. That's just 
too far-fetched. And furthermore, they don't have the military capability to do it. It's the United States and its European allies, right? But then Ukraine is a de facto member of NATO, and that's unacceptable to the Russians. So there's no way you're going to get a truly neutral Ukraine that's not affiliated with the West. It's not going to happen, and the Russians are not going to accept that. So what the Russians are going to do instead is they're going to create, if they can, a dysfunctional rump state. And that's what they're doing now. That's why they've taken all that territory, number one. And number two, that's why they're wrecking Ukraine. What's quite frightening about what you're saying is that actually, if there is no deal to be done, and the logic is that the conflict will just carry on, and eventually more doubling down... Will more happen, escalation. More escalation. It seems from what you're saying that you think we are headed towards some kind of escalated conflict between the West and Russia. Whether that's nuclear or not, it, it, the logic would seem, if neither side finds the current status acceptable, and both sides are refusing to concede that a bigger, much more dangerous conflict is inevitable. Inevitable is too strong a word. Likely? Is likely. That, that's correct. But I, I think your description of the present situation is right on the money. And the, the two outcomes that we have to worry greatly about are, one, where the Russians use nuclear weapons, right? And two, where the United States comes into the fight, or the West comes into the fight, because then you have a great power war. The United States and Russia are actually fighting each other. And as Avril Haines, the director of national intelligence in the United States, told the Senate, uh, this past spring, uh, the most likely scenario for the Russians to use nuclear weapons is if NATO comes into the fight, right? So this is very dangerous. So do you now think that some kind of nuclear event is likely? Likely is too strong a word. Uh, there's a, The rhetoric I like to use is there's a non-trivial chance uh, that nuclear weapons will be used here. And let me tell you why I think that's the case. Uh, if the Russians were to use nuclear weapons, the most likely scenario is that they would use them in Ukraine. And Ukraine does not have nuclear weapons of its own. So the Ukrainians would not be able to retaliate against the Russians with their own nuclear weapons. So that weakens deterrence. Furthermore, if the Russians use nuclear weapons in Ukraine, the West, and here we're talking mainly about the United States, is not going to retaliate with nuclear weapons against Russia because that would lead to a general thermonuclear war. So the Russians... Is Russian, that certain? Pardon? Is it certain that if the... So you think if, if Putin detonated an actual nuclear bomb within Ukraine, there would be no retaliation by the West? No, there would be no nuclear retaliation. Macron has said that, by the way. We would not retaliate with nuclear weapons. The great danger is that if the um, Russians use nuclear weapons in Ukraine, right, that the West would retaliate with a massive conventional attack against Russian forces. David Petraeus, General Petraeus, has said that if the Russians attack with nuclear weapons inside Ukraine, we should take our conventional forces, NATO's conventional forces, and slam Russian conventional forces inside of Ukraine and Russian naval forces in the Black Sea. If we were to do that, we would then have a great power war. NATO would be at war against Russia. And as Avril Haines, the director of national intelligence, said, that is likely to lead to a nuclear war because the Russians would not be able to stand up to the Americans and their allies. So what would you be advising in the very unhappy event that Russia does launch some kind of nuclear strike within Ukraine? What do you think the wise response is? The wise response, and I think the likely response, is we would go to great lengths to immediately shut down the conflict. I think the use of nuclear weapons is what would shut down the conflict. It's the only possibility. I'm not saying that would axiomatically happen, but the, it, it would become so clear at that point in time uh, that we were uh, uh, in danger of creating a, a, a nuclear war between the superpowers that we would go to great lengths to shut it down. That would focus the mind in ways that are hard to imagine in the current context. I mean, that's a, it's a risk that we hope we don't need to take. But we're actually making it more and more likely. It's very important to understand that the more successful that NATO and the Ukrainians are at defeating the Russians inside of Ukraine and wrecking the Russian economy, the more successful we are, the more likely it is that they will use nuclear weapons. And again, you do not want to underestimate what great powers will do when they're desperate. i just give you another example to highlight that. 
in the, in the summer, late summer of 1945, the United States had defeated Japan. Japan was finished in the summer of 1945. And the United States was unable to get the Japanese to surrender. And we felt that there was a serious possibility we would have to invade the Japanese home islands with amphibious forces. And given the casualties we had suffered at Iwo Jima and Okinawa, the last thing the Americans wanted to do was to invade the Japanese home islands. So given how desperate we were to avoid that outcome, invading the Japanese home islands, we were willing to drop two nuclear weapons on Japan. And of course, we were willing to do that because Japan had no ability to retaliate with its own nuclear weapons against us. The situation is somewhat analogous to the one that the Russians face in the circumstances where they are losing in Ukraine and they are becoming desperate. They could think about using nuclear weapons in Ukraine against Ukraine and not have to fear nuclear retaliation because Ukraine does not have nuclear weapons of its own. I think you're more sanguine than I would be that Western leaders would treat a nuclear event as a cause to kind of make peace and, and de-escalate. But I mean, you, you the rhetoric right. among Western leaders at the moment is all very moral. It's very much about teaching lessons. And it's, I find it unthinkable that they would allow exploding a nuclear device to be a way to win a war. It, you know, here in the UK, we've had three prime ministers in less than six months, and each one has recommitted to the Ukraine conflict, has immediately gone to see President Zelensky. It's become very much a, a kind of article of faith of being a good person in politics now. Have you observed that? And how do you square that with the idea that they would be realistic in the event of a nuclear strike? Well, I understand exactly what you're saying. And you may be correct that uh, Western leaders will retaliate with massive conventional attacks or even with nuclear weapons uh, in the event the Russians use nuclear weapons inside Ukraine. I'm not saying you're wrong. I'm right. Uh, it's very difficult to predict where this war is headed. So I think there's a serious chance uh, that you're right. And that scares me even more. But the point I would make is that once nuclear weapons are used, it will become clear, I think, I hope, to all the policymakers in the West that we have crossed a dangerous threshold. And that what has to be done now is that this war has to be brought to an end immediately before it spins out of control. I mean, you want to think about what the consequences are here. The consequences are that cities will be incinerated. Right? We're talking about a general nuclear war. That's a possible outcome. Right? Just go back to the Cuban Missile Crisis and think about how JFK thought about dealing with the Soviets, and how the Soviets thought about the situation themselves. Both Khrushchev and Kennedy understood that this one had to be immediately shut down. We're talking about the possibility of a war escalating to the nuclear level, involving two countries, the United States and the Soviet Union, that have massive nuclear arsenals aimed at each other. Both leaders understood full well this conflict had to be shut down immediately. What do we have today? We have a situation where there's a war taking place, where the Russians are deeply involved, and NATO is doing everything but pulling the triggers and pushing the buttons, right? This is a very dangerous situation. We should be doing everything possible to shut it down, but that's not happening. What role do you feel that the UK has played in that? Because most of your focus is the US is the, the big gorilla in the room, but the UK has been a, a big part of the defense of Ukraine and, and has been really leading the charge more than Germany, more than France, and has been perhaps the most robust within Europe. Do you have any comment on the, the UK response? I think it's been the most robust within Western Europe. In Eastern Europe, you have the Poles and the Baltic states, which have been every bit as enthusiastic about this war as the British have been. No, I think the British are major cheerleaders. Uh, uh, they're pushing the United States uh, to continue uh, its policies uh, with regard to Ukraine. And, uh, and uh, they're strong allies in this enterprise. I think the British are being remarkably foolish, just like I think uh, the Poles, uh, the Baltic states, and the Americans are being remarkably foolish. Let me ask you about Sweden and Finland. Um, would you have foreseen that they would ask to become members of NATO after this crisis? And my final question on Ukraine before we move on, in a sense, it takes us back to the beginning, which is that moment on February the 24th, when Russia invaded Ukraine from the north towards Kiev, from the south, up from Crimea, from the east, was shocking. 
and stunning to many observers. A lot of your realist colleagues said it wouldn't happen. Um, there was a sense that this was an, an act so far beyond what we considered to be acceptable on a, the European continent that the response had to be appropriate. And then you say things like there is zero evidence that Russia wanted to conquer Ukraine. How do you square those? I mean, most people observing that moment felt pretty confident that Russia wanted to conquer Ukraine. Why are they wrong? Well, there's no evidence that Russia was interested in conquering Ukraine, number one. Number two, they did not this try... This is invading it from all... That's the size of army you need to conquer a country like Ukraine, occupy it, and then incorporate it into a greater Russia. You need a massive army. This was a limited aim strategy. This was not a strategy that was designed to conquer Ukraine. I mean, it's very hard to make that argument in the West at this point in time, because the propaganda, which says that Russia was intent on conquering all of Ukraine and absorbing it into a greater Russia, is so pervasive. But anybody who knows anything about military operations knows that you couldn't conquer and absorb Ukraine with 190,000 troops. And so that issue has to be clearly established. What they wanted, what the Russians have said they have wanted from the beginning is a neutral Ukraine. And if they can't get a neutral Ukraine, what they're going to do is create a dysfunctional rump state. And there's no evidence that you're going to get a neutral Ukraine. And what the Russians are doing is creating a dysfunctional rump state. China is a peer competitor of the United States uh, and that it is a threat to dominate Asia the way the United States dominates the Western Hemisphere. And the United States does not tolerate uh, other regional hegemons. We're a regional hegemon in the Western Hemisphere. And over time, we have gone to great lengths to prevent countries like Imperial Germany, Imperial Japan, Nazi Germany, and the Soviet Union from dominating either Europe or Asia. From an American point of view, that's unacceptable. And I think that's correct. I think the United States should not want China to dominate Asia the way we dominate the Western Hemisphere. So we're going to go to great lengths to contain China. And for purposes of containing China, uh, it is important for us to defend Taiwan. Uh, and from a Chinese point of view, this is categorically unacceptable. Taiwan, from a Chinese point of view, is sacred territory. And the fact that the West uh, is preventing China from reincorporating Taiwan into its body politic is a cause of anger, real anger. So what's happening here is that as the security competition between China and the United States ratchets up in East Asia, the United States becomes more committed than ever to defending Taiwan to keeping Taiwan allied with the United States and its other allies in East Asia, infuriating the Chinese more and more. So you have this intense security competition setting in. And at the heart of that intense security competition is this potential point of conflict, Taiwan, that threatens to escalate and cause a war. But you, Stanford, I think viewers Stanford. or listeners might be surprised to hear you on that, because in a sense, it's the opposite of your view of the Russia question, that even though China is a regional hegemon, and Taiwan is, whether they consider it part of greater China or whether it's just too close to have as a uh, allied with a foreign power, there is a parallel to Ukraine and Russia. But in that example, you think it would be worth, it is in the strategic interests of the US to actually send forces, risk a greater escalation, and actually go to war if necessary to defend Taiwan. Yeah, I think uh, the situation with China is a lot like the situation with the Soviet Union during the Cold War. I, I believe the United States had a deep-seated interest in preventing the Soviet Union from dominating all of Europe and dominating all of Asia, uh, for sure. Uh, the Soviet Union was a peer competitor of the United States. And I think the United States has a vested interest in making sure that it is the only regional hegemon of the planet and that the Soviet Union not dominate Europe. Uh, okay, let's uh, wind things up with uh, a nice, nice little bit of uh, music here.